you know, my sausage and onions are smelling amazing right now. So just kind of threw them on. I kind of put it on low heat. Now get it up to like medium heat. There, uh, yeah, the whole house kind of smells like onions and sausage right now. Oh, yeah, man, I can get onto that. <laughs> I have I have them with some, uh, uh, you know, fried peanut butter and banana sandwiches, baby. I was gonna make a peanut butter banana sandwich joke, but uh, couldn't. Don't make fun couldn't. of my favorite food, baby. <laughs> you are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. Discussions of an adult nature, adult language, and spoilers for the films discussed are most likely. Still on board? Come on in. Enjoy your stay. They must be destroyed on sight! Baby, this is uh, Elvis Aaron Presley, and you're listening to uh, They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 124. Uh, we're going to look at some movies here. Uh, the host, Lee, Burning Love Russell, will be on here momentarily. And by the way, Lee, uh, I got something to clear that up for you, baby. Uh, I've been with a lot of women, and uh, I know what I'm doing. I'm joined by uh, his esteemed, so he says, co-host, Daniel Hound Dog Harper. Uh, how are you doing there, you uh, bearded bearded man? I've got my grease gun at the ready for this. All right, baby. Yeah, you could use some lube. Uh, I'll tell you about that too, man. I, I know my way around uh, some lube. Uh, and we're also joined by a special guest. I'm told he is uh, an author, a musician, and a podcaster. Uh, hey, I'm a musician too, man. Uh, this is Kit, Devil in Disguise Power. How are you doing, sir? I'm all right. I'm watching right now all these souls flashing down the drain. That's what's happening. All right, and without further ado, I'll turn it over to Mr. Lee Russell. All right, thank you, Elvis Presley. King is not dead. Apparently not. That's and, uh, and that, my, that was my, a, quite a quite a get we got there. Like, I don't know how you set that up, Lee. That yeah, is, my, uh, two, my, my two coasts are looking at me like right now, like what the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you could have got Elvis for the intro. I got to be honest, I'd have come back sooner, guys. I, I, I'm not going to lie to you. That was impressive. Hey man, I, I've I've got a I've got a few contacts in the industry. What can I tell you? But you know. <laughs> not not necessarily the music or film industry. It was the stamp industry. The statute of limitations ran out on the fat Elvis versus thin Elvis debate, and uh, he could finally show up and do a uh, shitty movie podcast. So uh, nice to him, man. <laughs> Okay, so now that that nonsense is out of the way, <laughs> uh, we're concluding our uh, sex comedy series here, and uh, these are two suggestions from our guest, Kit Power. How are you doing, sir? Uh, glad to have you back. Yeah, it's great to be back. And it's you. These movies are entirely your fault. I take no responsibility for this at all. This is down to you and Daniel. This is your fault. I don't know if that's a if that's a positive or negative claim, but uh, I'll take it. <laughs> I don't know if he's thanking us or blaming us for this, but <laughs> well, both, I think. 
Yeah, so we're going to be uh, checking two films here. We're going to be looking at Viva Las Vegas from 1964. And then we're going to be moving on to Carnal Knowledge from 1971. But before we get into that, I'll just throw it over to you, gentlemen. If you have anything you've watched in the last little while, and because Kit is our guest, you can go first, sir. Okay, yeah. I haven't been watching a lot of films lately, but I did recently finish about a four or five week binge rewatch of the entire Sopranos. There was a episode, the pilot episode was on TV. We were channel hopping one night and we caught the first five minutes of the pilot episode by chance, me and the missus. And we just looked at each other and went, oh shit. And I went to the garage and got out of the box sets. Um, <laughs> and we just, that's what we've been doing for the last sort of four or five weeks. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty much every bit as good as I remember it. Some of it has dated, even the dating kind of works because it's a story that's told in a particular time in a particular place. So actually the the fact that it dates often isn't to its detriment per se. You know, it just grounds it very much in, in the time it was told. There are a couple of bad episodes on the way through. There are a couple that just don't really work for whatever reason. Um, they tend to be the bottle episodes where they just don't have a lot that that progresses the main plot they tend to be the mid-season ones there's a couple of them especially there's one in season three i think about columbus day that's just just bad i mean it's just a bad episode everyone's iq plummets by 30 points <laughs> everyone's suddenly got a really 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 strong opinion about christopher columbus and you know it's kind of it's just it's, yeah. just, it's just dumb it's just bad but i mean the, the one or two episodes like that sound like sent out like a sore thumb because the rest of it's just so damn good I got emotional over again, especially at Gandolfini. It's it, it was the performance of a lifetime, and I mean, given how young he died, and given the fact he died of a heart attack, you know, you could argue it's the role that killed him. I mean, he put on a ridiculous amount of weight through the course of the six seasons, and you see it. I mean, you can see the toll it's taking on him physically. So apparently, a cocaine fiend. Uh, now that I didn't know, but that certainly wouldn't help with the heart condition. That's okay, that's so rumors it's- anyway, but. I've heard right. stories. Well, maybe maybe it's not all David Chase's fault then for making him put on two hundred and eighty pounds. <laughs> but um it uh, but still it's just it's an amazing performance. He's uh, he's a one of a kind actor. Uh, and and the supporting cast is great. I mean I love that I'd forgotten about how good Edie Falco was as uh, as his wife, Carmela's an incredible creation as well, actually. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's got little Stephen. It's got, you know, Bruce Springsteen's <laughs> guitarist as a like yeah. hood, and he's awesome. He's hilarious. I mean, you know. It looks like he's doing an impression of himself. It's glorious. So yeah, that's that's it. That's what I've been watching. And it's just been and we literally watched the last episode last night and now I don't know what the hell I'm gonna do with my life, frankly. It's probably the cliched answer, but I think my favorite episode of that is uh is is the Barons, I think it is. The one where they're chasing that Russian Pine Barons. Yeah, Pine Barons where they're they're trying yeah. to kill that Russian that they uh, that they kidnapped. That's great. Yeah. Well, Directed by Steve Buscemi, that one, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that series quite a bit. Uh, James Gandolfini, I think my my favorite role of his is still in True Romance, though, where he, he plays that uh, that hitman who comes to rough up Patricia Arquette and um and, and has the tables turned on him. Yep. Yeah. The corkscrew the foot. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That fight is one of the most visceral uh, cinema scraps oh, ever. That one. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. Brutal. It's so yeah. brutal. I should probably revisit that series. It, it's it's weird now, like the the thought of revisiting uh, sort of old style TV series where you had like twenty plus episodes a season. Now seems really daunting mm. to me. Now that we binge watch like ten episode seasons or something on Netflix, you know. It, yeah, so Promise scary. isn't too bad for that because it's HBO, so they're actually twelve to fourteen. So it's not are they it's, okay? It's, yeah, yeah, it's not quite. Cool. I mean, they're full hours. Um, yeah. Because HBO, but yeah, there's not. Um, the only other thing I will say is very weird about it. The last season, there's a couple of Trump references in the last few episodes. 
that obviously now have a completely different you know vibe to there's a point aj actually makes a comment about how he he's gonna he's gonna join the army become a helicopter pilot and then become trump's helicopter pilot like that's his oh. ultimate goal and you just think like that's just really insane you know because <laughs> then it was what was it 2007 2008 whatever when it was made and you're just like wow yeah that's got a whole different connotation now <laughs> back when he was just a pop culture joke instead of a worldwide joke now and, and now he's still a pop culture joke but one with access to nuclear codes so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is what we've done to ourselves man what, what? anyway let's not start that <laughs> so uh daniel anything you've been watching yeah, I uh, didn't really have much to say about that. I've actually never seen The Sopranos. I've seen one or two episodes oh. here and there. Uh, my favorite, James Gandolfini, is actually In the Loop. Okay. I really love him in In the Loop. Uh, no, the uh, one thing I've seen is I actually did see uh, Solo uh, opening weekend, oh, the uh, Star Wars prequel, oh. and uh, thought it was fine. Like, that was kind of my, okay. you know, um, I don't come at this as a uh, big Star Wars fan. I, I neither love nor hate Star Wars. I really loved Rogue One. And I really loved uh, The Last Jedi. kind of just decided to see Solo uh, really on the strength of I really wanted to see Danny Glover in it. That was kind of the one thing, you know. Uh, my joke on my joke on uh, Twitter was I would have seen this movie a lot more uh, willingly had it been called Lando, you know. Um, now, you isn't, know. That guy's, isn't that guy's name something that you, you said Danny Glover? Don Glover, Don Glover. Don Glover, yeah. Danny Glover's a bit of a different Danny, guy. Danny I'm Glover, Danny for Glover. This shit. Yeah, he he is, he would be much too old to play solo or to play uh, Lando Calrissian today. Yes, Don Glover. No, I you know uh, the super fans were really uh, kind of get got a big uh, prequel vibe off of it just because it does uh, it is just the fan linkiest of fan link things. And uh, if the, that matters to you and you didn't expect that like walking into the fucking thing, then I guess you uh, will be upset by that. Um, for myself, yeah, it's stupid, but whatever. It's got its moments. It's not necessarily a good movie. It definitely plays to a formulaic plot structure. Um, it does feel like it's the like the first part of a trilogy or something because it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger. So maybe we'll see kind of more. I would be really interested in seeing kind of where the story goes once it's no longer focused on let's get the crew together and let's like everything important that happened to Han Solo happened over the course of like a week, you know, oh, um, shit. kind of, you know, plot strategy. Like he gets the Millennium Falcon and he meets Lando Calrissian and he meets Chewbacca and all that stuff all happened. You know, it's the same. It's the same structure that the prequels took. That it's just sucks. as stupid. As that, that, that sounds really sucky to me because I mean, when you get to Harrison Ford uh, in, in the first Star Wars film, it's like it feels like this guy's weathered the storm for like twenty years, you know? Yeah, like, no, it just it, it it. I mean, I wish that if they're if you're gonna do a young Han Solo film, you should do a. You should have a story you want to tell, like an actual like interesting story. And I think they do sort of like manage that, and then they've got all this other stuff kind of grafted onto it because it's kind of the story of Han Solo left this like kind of slave planet and you know there was a girl there and then he runs into her later and that feels like that's an interesting story and then it's got like he meets Chewbacca and Lando Calrissian shows up and you know they're I don't know like it, there's a lot of stuff to like in it although it is formulaic you know but it's fine I don't know I, did, I didn't have strong feelings about it one way or the other the fact that it's one of the most expensive films ever made is probably the big detraction mm-hmm. from that because it was like mm-hmm. a $250 million film and so it just has to make a billion dollars to break even, but and it's not going to do that, it looks like. I would really like to see, I mean, if you're going to do these kind of like smaller scale Star Wars pictures, I'd really I'd rather see them at the like $60 million level. I'd love to see, you know, 
give people a little bit more room to kind of play around with these ideas rather than doing like the big event picture thing. And I don't know it's, I'm not, I'm not a marketing guy at Disney. So who the fuck knows? I'm just some guy talking into a microphone on the internet, but I thought the film was basically okay. And that was kind of all I had to say about that. Have you guys seen it yet? I haven't. I, you uh, have seen it, haven't you, Kit? No, I haven't. Um, oh. No, in, I mean, it, it, you're saying about wishing the movie had been called Lando. I mean, I, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's a good idea for a movie because actually, he's a character we really don't know much about. So, a Lando movie does right. have some interest in me because a lot of mystery, like you know. But I got to be honest, uh, the thing that would have got me through the door if it if it had been called Chewie. That's because I just <laughs> I've, I've come it, to realize Chewie's one of my very favorite characters it, in the Star Wars. It actually, missions. kind of is like once you okay. kind of follow the structure a little bit, like you, like Chewie shows up fairly early, and you get okay. like for the probably for the first time in any of the films at least, Chewie kind of becomes a character as opposed to just kind of a uh, a little bit of a punching bag slash comic relief character. You do get a little bit of a hint of like who Chewie is. You might be pleasantly surprised by how much Chewbacca there is in the film. Oh, okay, well, that, maybe maybe I'll go see it. <laughs> I'm holding up for the Walrus Man movie. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see the Boba Fett movie, though. By the way, like, no, no, no. The but, uh, the the oh. best idea for a uh, let's let's look at the history of a character thing I saw on Twitter when it was uh, you know a retweet that went around when it was uh, <laughs> I want to see the movie of. Lando Carizian, Donald Glover as Lando Carizian, waking up after a night of drunken gambling and realizing that he's now the like administrator of Cloud City, and he has to like <laughs> leave his drunken revelry behind. Oh, become, so like, yeah, you know, he 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 wins it in a bet, and now he's right, stuck and, with it. And then he has to be like, you know, now now I have to actually run Cloud City. You know, um, that's cool. I like that. That's a, that that's a great idea, personally, um, and I hope that Disney does that. But of course, that's much too interesting an idea to actually become a movie, right? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, you're not going to have any Wookies or uh, necessarily any sort of like uh, battles between spaceships and shit and that. You're you're just going to have him doling out tasks to all the dudes with fucking. Uh, machinery stuck to their heads walking around and, <laughs> yeah <laughs> i, I want to see two hours of donald glover doing space paperwork basically that's the, you know. <laughs> get me those requisition forms nancy <laughs> that's what i need to see and he's drinking like the star wars equivalent of colt 45 at some point yeah yeah yeah. Nice. no perfectly perfectly yeah yeah all right. <laughs> so uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll play a promo for a podcast of some sort, and we'll be right back with Viva Las Vegas. You ungodly warlock. Hello, and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I am Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, bark, bark. and he said, bark, bark, bark. And she said, bark, 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 bark. that's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner, the other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. which one is crying? <laughs> the boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, this is the Doomed Show, is available on Hello Doomed Show. Automatic.com and doomedmoviethon.com. Hello, hello, this is the Doom Show. Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. It's the Doom Show. Hello, hello, this is the Doom Show. 
deadly warlock. All right, we're back. Viva Las Vegas, 1964. Viva Elvis, Viva and Margaret. Viva the excitement when these two let themselves go on a wild and woolly world through Funtown, USA. Yes, the sky's the limit for love, laughter, and those wonderful new sounds. She loves, loves, loves me. Would you like to make a bet? I said the lady loves me. When this boy falls, he really falls hard. But who wouldn't when the girl is seductive and Margaret? Once I met a nice old man upon the village green. I helped him cross the street into his limousine. Next day he sent the biggest brooch I've ever seen to show his appreciation. The eyes of Texas are upon you. You cannot get away. If you think I don't need you, then baby, you're wrong. Give you my heart today, tomorrow, and forever. And it's a pleasure to hear a man's opinion and not have to listen to the stubborn ravings of a boy who won't grow up and. Directed by George Sidney, our old friend from The Swinger. And I think we'll talk a little bit about that movie and George Sidney as well here in a, in a few moments. Uh, written by I Sally can't imagine Benson. why you would think so. No, no. <laughs> uh, written by Sally Benson, uh, starring Elvis Presley as Lucky Jackson and Margaret as Rusty Martin. Caesar Donova as Count Elmo Mancini. William Demarest as Mr. Martin. In, in parentheses here, Rusty's father. Thanks, movie. Thanks, IDMB, IDMBDB, blah, 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 for telling me that shit. Nikki Blair is Shorty Farnsworth. Uh, Jack Carter is himself. Terry Garr as Showgirl. And the Jubilee Four as themselves. And there's a synopsis I got here from uh, IMDB. Lucky Jackson arrives in town with his car literally in tow, ready for the first Las Vegas Grand Prix. Once he has the money to buy an engine. He gets the cash easily enough, but mislays it when a pretty swimming pool managerist takes his mind off things. It seems he will lose both race and girl. Problems made more difficult by rivalry with Elmo Mancini, fellow racer and womanizer. Perhaps some singing will help. Written by Jeremy Perkins. I, that's a pretty flippant and accurate uh, description of this film <laughs> but yeah first uh we'll throw over to uh kit power for his sort of initial thoughts on this i just want to start by pointing out that i should explain what i meant when i in the first part when i talked about this being you guys fault so <laughs> the last time i came on the show we watched uh we watched tommy uh sorry we talked about tommy and we talked about uh parents and off the back of the tommy conversation i ended up getting a gig writing a book about tommy so i finished the first draft of that a couple You're of months welcome, back kit. in a you're welcome. Yeah, no, thank you, really. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, if I got that amount of work out of every podcast I did, I'd actually be able to think about quitting the day job. So uh, I do appreciate it, believe me. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so the, the first draft I finished actually about sort of uh, about a month ago, and I sent it out to a couple of critical readers, and uh, the word count had come in low. Uh, I was writing to a very strict word count, but I managed to come in a couple of thousand under the under the word count. So 
one of the things I'd explained to the critical readers was, if there's any way you think this needs expanding, let me know. And uh, one of the guys came back and said, well, you've got to write more about Anne-Margaret because all you've done is talk about her in this film and she's a complete superstar and you have to talk more about her other stuff. And I, I mean, I'm a complete ignoramus. So I was like, what other stuff? I don't even, you know, she did something other than Tommy. And he's like, okay, she was in an Elvis movie. I'm like, okay. She was in one. She was in one yeah, yeah. Elvis movie, yes. But, you know, you can see the Tommy connection, right? It's like, okay, so I probably have to watch Anne Margaret in an Elvis movie. And then she said, and, and, he, and, the guy, and they said, and she was in another movie with Jack Nicholson. She was in Carnal Knowledge with Jack Nicholson, and he's in Tommy. So you've got to watch that. And I was like, okay, fine. So it's all your fault that I watched these two movies. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought, at least church. I could do. Yeah, yeah. So the least I could do was uh, come back on the show and flick them on YouTube as well. So uh, there you go. So. Viva, having said all that, so Viva Las Vegas, what did I think of Viva Las Vegas? Well, okay, I don't have anything really to to measure this against because I haven't seen any Elvis movies apart from this one. I don't know if they're all this kind of nuts, but this this is this is crazy. I mean, it, it it's barely a movie, right? Let's start there, right? It's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of an excuse to have Elvis sing half a dozen songs and, and our Margaret sing a couple. The musical numbers are great. I mean, they're well choreographed, they're well performed, they're nice and energetic. Elvis is kind of amazing to watch. I'm used to kind of TV Elvis and I guess I'd have to say, I don't know what, poster Elvis, right? I mean, his face is everywhere, especially if you actually go to Vegas, right? It's on slot machines. But I'm used to that face from a very specific angle right the tv <laughs> angle or the, or the poster angle and, I, and and frankly i've never seen him moving in three dimensions i don't think before for any length of time so one of the things about this movie that amazed me was i i kept waiting for the uncanny valley moment looking at elvis like surely he's going to be ugly from some angle or weird from so and he's not he's just flawless he's just completely and it kind of hurts your eyes after a while looking at him because it's just he's just too perfect i mean his hair is is just this shaped solid thing it doesn't appear to obey the laws of human gravity or hair you know it's it's and and everything about him is like that he's just impossibly perfect he does have this completely magnetic charm so that's so elvis is insane i mean he's just insane to watch and uh uh, and you can kind of see why they didn't bother really with a plot because you don't need to when you've got elvis and margaret on camera they're amazing she was spectacular i mean obviously i was watching her very carefully because i was literally taking notes um She's she's just phenomenal, and I, I think yes, that was the reason you were watching very carefully. <laughs> That's right; it was yeah, rec- it was for the book. I understand exactly. I had the perfect alibi, um, and she's just kind of she's just astonishing. I mean, she's the thing that really got me about her was in that opening kind of song that that they had together the 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 stalker anthem, the lady loves me, you know. And Elvis is actually standing outside woman's changing room singing a song at her through the window about uh, through the door about how how much she's in love with him even though she hasn't realized it yet i mean it's like this this is clearly you know pre me too um (laughs) and uh and she like her non-verbal reactions to his song are just they're just amazing it's just it's it's so incredible what she does with her facial expressions in that sequence this kind of exasperation but vaguely charmed it's just amazing. Absolutely incredible. And when she does a song, My Rival is a Car, later on, some of the emotional beats she hits in that, I'd lay money Ken Russell saw this film. And I'd lay money that Ken Russell thought about that song when he was thinking about casting it for Tommy. Because you can see when she gets to some of the uh, stronger emotions in that particular song, you start to see, or I start to see, like a ghost of that performance that you later see in Tommy, that massive, you know, 
incredibly powerful emotional performance. It was it was in in some of that. Frankly, taking it far more seriously than it deserved because the song's called "My Rival Is a Car." I mean, for fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> and the only other thing, I guess, as far as initial thoughts, I'll close with this. I realised at a certain point that this was the plot of this film only really made sense if it had been written by a six-year-old who drank like three litres of full-fat Coca-Cola. Because it's basically like, uh, and then he meets her, and then she pushes him in the swimming pool, and then he loses all the money, and then and then, and then then he takes her in a helicopter, and then they go in a helicopter, and then they go speed, you know, and then they go on their water skis, and then they go and meet her dad, but then he has to go back, and then she comes back with her, and then they go dancing, and then they sing a song, and then they sing another song, and it's just like, that's it. That's the, that's the only level on which this plot makes any goddamn sense whatsoever. <laughs> uh, Daniel? I just love the fact that they have about six dates in one afternoon. You know, like, uh, and they're, they have like costume changes and shit. Like they go to like a Western themed, you know, like yeah. they, 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 they go skeet shooting. They, they ride in the helicopter. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, at one point she's even uh, basically like tourism board for the Hoover Dam, um, which seems to be like, oh, look, we got permission to film on the Hoover Dam. So we got to throw some facts in there for the, you know, She's you know, almost literally reading a brochure. Like, that's what she's doing is reciting it, right? I like, mean, this, this whole movie is a big advertisement for Las Vegas. Yeah. 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 It's like, oh, it's one of the seven moderns, uh, seven wonders of the 20th century world or something like that, you know? And it's like, hold on, wait, did Ann Margaret just, like, is she, like, cashing a check right now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, overall, I mean, this movie, you know, I'm, I'm going to be much less kind to, uh, to a certain, uh, king of rock and roll than Kit just was. Not that he isn't, uh, handsome, but he is, uh, handsome like a wooden block. I find him completely uninteresting to look at. I found the film, uh, you know, it's got lots of pretty colors, but for the most part, this film only really comes alive for me when Anne Margaret's on screen. And then like, towards the end, there's a auto race. And uh, I thought that was pretty well shot and, uh, directed and edited. Um, for the time period. So, uh, you know, I kind of perked back up a little bit there, but for the most part, the entire film, you know, I'm supposed to be on Elvis's side and I'm like, this guy's just a skeevy, you know, dickhead. <laughs> and, um, plot wise, it does kind of, I mean, it really is just sort of a, a device to string the songs along with. Right. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, you know, Elvis is at first, like, I think, is he working in the auto shop or maybe he's just like a racer and he's, I don't know, like the economics of this movie don't really make any sense to me. And maybe that's because I just wasn't quite paying enough attention to it. But I think it's because the screenwriters weren't paying enough attention to it. You know, it is, uh, it is well shot. Uh, George Sidney clearly uh, loves his material. And by his material, that opening shot of Anne Margaret is something for the ages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Definitely, you kind of see the uh, the origins of the swinger in that in that shot. Half of this <laughs> half of this movie is the swinger, like just it's it's remade into the swinger, basically. Yeah, I mean, down to the uh, costume in a, in mm-hmm. a certain uh, pivotal sequence. The sheer leggings in the sweater. The yep. Sheer leggings in the sweater. Yeah, it's just a different color. That's it. It's red yep. instead of green. But yeah, no, that's that's. I don't know what else there is to say about Viva Las Vegas. The songs are pretty cute, you know. Yeah, um, um, this is like this is like the first musical we've done on this show, and there's a reason the for full, that. The full first fledged one we've done. Yeah, the way this movie's made is Elvis is supposed to be the coolest guy ever, and the reason none of the stuff he does makes any sense is because they're throwing all these different ideas onto the character of what's supposed to appeal to the male viewer. So he's not only a race car driver; he also gets his hands dirty and works as a mechanic. Uh, he'll do odd jobs as a bellboy because he's not a snooty upper crust dude. 
And uh, also at the same time, he can just pull off this amazing musical number because he's incredibly handsome and talented and he can sing and he can dance all at the same time. So he's like the total wish fulfillment kind of idea for like that era kind of dude, I guess. Uh, I mean, my, my question is, why is he a race car driver? I mean, I feel like, I mean, because it's cool, quote unquote, I'm putting that in air quotes. That's right. Cause like, you like the thrill, baby. The whole, the <laughs> whole like concept of the film is like, he's kind of a loser who falls in love with this girl and then pursues her like the race car stuff, except for just, they wanted to film that material. Like there, there's no real reason for it. It doesn't have to be here. Well, well, here, here, here's the reason some Japanese investors came in and said, we're going to be doing this cartoon called speed racer. (laughs) (laughs) And and we we need to test run it in a live action film first before we do it. So uh, can we just throw this in here? And then Elvis. I'm sure you were going to go with Hanna Barbera and, um, Wacky racist because that's what it was like. It was well, I, I, I immediately went to Speed Racer because I'm just looking at this and it's like the cars look exactly the same, the costumes look almost exactly the same. It's like it's yeah. totally Speed Racer. Well, it's, well, yeah, clearly. I mean, this was this was a big movie. I mean, this was a big hit at the time. So, I mean, I think there is a a, a clear indication that the uh, you know Speed Racer is probably uh, let's just say inspired by. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, some of the stuff of even Las Vegas. I mean, even the way they shoot Vegas in the opening shots, like that's mm-hmm. been used yeah. so many times over and over again, just for movies set in Vegas or feature Vegas at some point in the film. Like you see those shots, like it's just a sort of a famous thing, like right up to like fucking Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. A lot of the same shots. And I find that really incredible because it's, I mean, part of the thing for me is just that the, the fact that that's a historical document at this point. I mean, very few of the hotels, casinos that are, that are filmed in that sequence are actually still standing. Right. Um, I mean, the strip is such a, is such a ferocious kind of symbolism of capitalism. And one of the ways it is, is that it's constantly destroying and reinventing itself. You know, g- casinos get torn down and replaced. I mean, especially with the kind of, you know, the loss of the mob influence and all that kind of stuff. So it really is. I mean, I, I kind of, uh, I've got a very strange relationship with the city of Vegas. I actually kind of, I kind of, hate it and love it I, I mean i've been a couple of times and there are aspects of it that i think are amazing and it's obviously also on a lot of levels it's actually a really really disturbing place <laughs> like it really isn't a good place in any any sort of meaningful sense of the word good um yeah i'm i'm sensing your next book is going to be an examination of the las vegas and cinema kit <laughs> i don't know man I mean, it could be yeah but seeing that kind of i mean effectively historical document of the strip was quite something man and again you know you watch it go man this is 64 this is you know it's quite a you know just the sheer spectacle of it it's also kind of right at this moment you know the thing is that like when we talked about the swinger i'm sorry kit you haven't seen that one yet but like it's clear that lee and i are gonna have to talk about this you know that's sort of right at the moment where the sexual revolution is kind of starting to happen you're starting to kind of see that reflected in uh pop culture whereas this is a little this is like right in between the uh you know beach party movies and right. uh you know something like the swinger so you so you are getting you know it's not as overtly kiddified but you're right um when you talk about the the structure of the way it's written i mean it is kind of written on this like childlike level and i think that that's just because it is meant to sort of appeal to like family audiences while also you know just under the surface there is this kind of raw unbridled sexuality and i mean certainly even um elvis you know clearly you know was was hugely controversial at least early in his yeah. career which was 10 years earlier or not quite eight years earlier at this point um something like yeah, that so. because say what you will about elvis a lot of people give him credit for sort of 
uh, making black music popular to uh, white teenagers. And I mean, he wasn't the only one doing that, but he did bring more of a rhythm and sexuality to the sort of idea, like sort of brought that out of that music. And he was definitely a few steps removed from something lame like Pat Boone or something like that, right? I mean, I mean, famously, when they when they filmed him, they'd only film him above the waist because, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> the libidos of the, uh, of the young people on the uh, watching him on TV could not and, be and, controlled. If and honestly, hips. honestly, like a good quarter of this film, you're seeing nothing but hips and below the waist, like shaking. <laughs> yeah, and then not only funny. Elvis and Anne Margaret either. Like it's uh, when when Elvis and Elmo, uh, Lucky and Elmo, I should say, go looking for Anne Margaret, and basically this is an extended tour guide of all the different acts in Las Vegas. They're looking for her because they assume, oh, she must work in Las Vegas somewhere. She must be one of the acts. So they're they're looking for her, and every one of them is almost shot from like the hip down, and them looking up at the stage, uh, at at all these uh, uh, shaking uh, legs and hips and and gyrations going on from all these different uh, female acts that are going on. It's how they definitely throw a little sex in the film without you know doing it in a and again it's like family friendly sex, and that's what these like reviews are really meant to be. I mean, I don't know. There's a it's kind of an interesting cultural artifact more so that it's an interesting mm. you know film. It's yeah, more interesting to talk about than it is to watch. And I mean, at this, I mean, at this point, they're actually starting to compete with the beach party movies, which were just like a take off of those. But like we said in our beach party episode they were trying to make the sort of Elvis formula a little bit more sexy and a little bit more raunchy and a little bit more adult. So now you find like an Elvis movie and like, I've seen a couple other Elvis movies. This one definitely sort of ups the sexuality quite a bit. You can see they're kind of knowingly competing with those sort of movies now. And at the same time, Elvis is competing with the Beatles because the Beatles are putting out movies at this point. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's right at the beginning of that kind of moment, and I and I think that's what's interesting about it. It's there's a tension, there's a, like an inherent tension to watching this because clearly, you know, Anne Margaret, the way that she dances and the way that, you know they film mm-hmm. her is overtly sexualized. Uh, oh yeah, but at the same time, they can't call it out. You know, I don't know. It's it's a it's kind of fascinating in a uh, you know uh, male gazey kind of you know what is the camera actually seeing kind of sense. Oh yeah, half the dialogue between uh, Lucky and Elmo is, well, Elmo doesn't seem so much in the know, uh, but but Elvis is like quipping about, yeah, I'd like to work under her hood, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like, that's, that's a hell of a chassis on that there car you got there, Elmo. You know? <laughs> what what's interesting? I was reading about this and um, the fact that Anne Margaret and Elvis had a uh, immediate bond. Some people say that they were, that they had an affair at this point. I think he was married at this point. Um, um, I think he was dating Priscilla at this point. Okay. Okay. Well, there's, there's some implication that there was a, that there was some infidelity involved here. Um, some people have denied it, but I mean, Anne Margaret is on record as saying Elvis was a soulmate kind of person to her and that mm-hmm. they met during the making of this film. And it's, it's ironic because like at first I'm like, man, these people just don't really have the chemistry that I'd want them to have together. If we're going to follow them the whole time. And then I read that and like, well, clearly they do. And then I realized that Elvis just isn't a good actor. So I just can't <laughs> <tell>. <laughs> 
<laughs> you can see it in her face, but you can't see it in his. And I'm like, well, clearly she's just the better actress. You know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you and know. I think, and I think, and I think you kind of see it. Like, um, you know, maybe I'll have to revisit it at some point and see. You know, now that I've kind of seen it, but I, I think he's. It's almost like Elvis. His acting style is to do blue steel the whole time. Like, I feel like there's that. You know, the thing that Kit referenced, and that he's just this block of handsomeness, and the whole point is that that's just who he is, and so. Uh, it's really difficult to emote and uh, be generically handsome at the same time. Oh, I'd, I'd go further, Daniel. I don't think he's acting at all. I don't think he's acting at all in any of that. I think he's repeating lines he's been given as Elvis, and he's just being Elvis. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe there's an alternate reading of this where it's just you know uh, there is no Lucky Jackson. That Lucky Jackson is like this undercover thing that <laughs> Elvis Presley, the star, went undercover as this uh, race car driver. As a, way of, that... as a way of sniffing out drugs, because that was <laughs> in, the, finally... in the pre in the uh, Nixon years, you know, when Nixon was, uh, you know, there's a conspiracy that goes way deep on this. <laughs> Look, it would it makes more sense than the actual plot if that's what's going on. <laughs> Let's be honest, that no, makes I mean... more sense of it because if nothing else, so when he does the big musical number, that's like he's finally coming out, right? When he does Viva Las Vegas to try and win the talent contest, it's like, oh yeah, okay, there he is. There's the guy See, who was there the whole time. If you guys had watched Bubba Hotep, which is actually the true story of Elvis Presley, you would know <laughs> that this is actually Sebastian Half and not Elvis. Uh, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, is there anything else to talk about with this film? <laughs> Other than I think Anne Margaret's fucking great, and you can see why George Sidney immediately needed to cast her into his masturbatory fantasy film, um, because you, you, because I mean it's just these scenes in this movie were great. We're going to make a film of Oat Elvis, and we're just going to have more of these scenes in this film, and it's going to be all around Anne Margaret. And yeah, uh, he, he God said, bless you, said, George Sidney, you perverted old man. He said, "What I need to do is to make this film again with no Elvis." I need to bring back the sheer tights. I need to get a close-up on that that lasts a good 30 seconds. And we got to include a strip tease sequence. Done. <laughs> and the paint dance. And uh, I will say no more for Kit's uh, delicate Yeah, ears. I will say I, uh, I I got a good laugh out of the shitty version of Ray Charles's uh, What I'd Say <laughs> uh, done here. That's pretty bad. Um, I do find it kind of it's there's a weird twisted irony about the sort of plasticity of how Elvis acts in this film when he sends a basically a fake tree to Anne Margaret as an apology it's an obvious <laughs> fake plastic tree <laughs> but yeah other other than that i think uh, oh, one more one more little bit of trivia apparently there were 3 uh, duets between Elvis and Anne Margaret in the original they shot mm-hmm. 3 of them and only one of them is in the film, and I and it was because they were afraid Anne Margaret was going to outshine Elvis in the film, which I yeah. think was a completely valid fear. <laughs> well, she did because apparently yeah, some did. theaters chose to uh, bill her above Elvis. Nice. Uh, yeah. So I mean, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, she 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 kicks his ass in uh, the Lady Loves Me, the the one two that's still on camera. You watch that scene; it's all about her. She's better when she's not singing than Elvis is when he is. I mean, she, she you know what I mean? Like she's mm-hmm. better. Her performance in response to Elvis singing is better than Elvis's singing performance. It's it's absurd how good she is in that sequence. I watched this with my wife, and she had the and really I sold this like she doesn't really watch a lot of the films that we watch for this show. I mean, <laughs> you know, 
or if she watches them, it's kind of with half an eye. But uh, I said like, oh, I've got some Anne Margaret films to watch. And she just like texted back, smiley face, you know. (laughs) So um, it was definitely like, yeah, we're going to watch some Anne Margaret. She made the comment very astutely, I think, that, you know, Anne Margaret's dancing is something that we're both really impressed by. And I think is Mm -hmm. uh, she does have the kind of the one big showstopper moment or um, sequence in this film. She makes the comment that Anne Margaret is able to do choreographed moves, but make them feel fresh and authentic and right. new, you know, yeah. and, and you see that most acutely when she's dancing with other people, when they're all kind of doing a choreographed routine, but like in Anne Margaret, it feels like something spontaneous, whereas everybody else is clearly doing the routine. And I think that's, oh, uh, that speaks that's, to yeah. her talent. Like they're they're all playing catch up. Even Elvis is there playing catch up with Anne Margaret. Like he's desperately yeah. playing catch up with <laughs> Anne Margaret. No, I agree with that. I think that's a really, uh, I think that's a really sharp observation, actually. Because I, as you say that, I was kind of running through the, you know, the big dance routines in my head, and yeah, I mean, that's exactly what's going on. She moves with this incredible uh, apparent spontaneity, and it isn't because she's hitting the steps everyone else is hitting, but somehow the way she's doing it and the energy with which she's doing it elevates it. It's really incredible. I mean, the the scene where she's in the, the I, I can't, I don't even know what it's supposed to be. Is it meant to be a dance club or a singing club or whatever? The f- oh, the one with the roulette wheel or. No, no, no. Where she's out, so like where Elvis comes to give her a date, and she's like, I, "I'm not going to do a date unless you sing." I'm doing the oh, same. Yeah. Oh god! Like, what? I don't even know what class that's meant to be, or whether she's teaching or she's just one of the pupils. Like, explanations. <laughs> this film doesn't give a shit, really. Yeah, because um, that's that's directly where the swinger rips the uh, the little commune dance troupe or whatever. They're okay. The hippie commune <laughs> dance troupe. Yeah, no, that, that I I got the feeling that that was her. Like, it really was just kind of a like. I kind of get the feeling that the film believes that everyone who lives in Las Vegas kind of wants to be an entertainer. And so <laughs> everyone on screen, you know, everyone we see kind of has this like secret life where they're like training to, you know, become a dancer or become right. a singer or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, and, and so it just sort of assumes, Oh, there's this dance troupe that she's a part of. And she's like, Oh, come and hang out with me and my dance troupe for a day. And then they go on five dates. It's part of It's part of that same process. It's like, we're going to do the dance troupe date. I legitimately thought that sequence was supposed to be a montage until I, until like we later learned, Oh, it's all part of the same day. That was the most, that <laughs> may be crazy. the ridiculous sequence that we've seen in a film. And that's saying something. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, her her dancing in that sequence was amazing, and I, you know, the uh, the what I say sequence as well. I mean, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the best version of that song that's ever been done, but she's phenomenal in that as well. Mm-hmm. Her moves in that are just incredible, and yeah, she does she does show Elvis up uh, on that on that front, no question. Um, I don't think I had a huge amount of that, except I, I, the race bit is just weird. I mean, just because the, the this is not a racing movie, and then suddenly in the last ten minutes, it's a racing movie, and actually, it's a pretty well put together racing movie for ten minutes. Mm-hmm. It's very well shot. Um, I was particularly like, did they actually race across the dam? It looked like that was real. I don't think that was a model shot. I couldn't tell for sure, but it looks like they actually raced across the fucking Hoover Dam, which my, is really intense. All the, uh, all the, like, the wide stunt shots looked authentic to me. Like, the only yeah. time you saw anything that looked a little fake was uh, the Elvis rear projection stuff when he was in the car. But even yep. that looked really great for rear projection. My guess is, and this is completely based on the fact that the, the they had she has this uh, Hoover Dam facts, you know, true facts Hoover Dam yep. style uh, <laughs> bit in the in the helicopter, is that 
the filmmakers got permission to uh, film on the Hoover Dam based on the idea that they were going mm-hmm. to like highlight it at some point and uh, draw tourism to it. Yeah, so, like, okay. my, my guess is that all that's of a piece. Um, I have no evidence of that other than I've no, seen the film that seems pretty, uh, at least a working hypothesis on how that happened. Come, that's come to, yeah. come to Hoover Dam, see Elvis' skid marks. Is that- <laughs> <laughs> nice. Come to Hoover Dam and Margaret wants you to. That's enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. There you go. What else are you going to do? Um, she did do a pretty amazing stunt on a motorbike as well. Um, oh yeah, no, that's that was I was impressed by that. I was just and that was her. Her. yeah, I'm that's sure that yeah. Uh, well, we talked about it a little bit on the swinger how she uh, she was a motorcycle freak. She actually had to be told to stop on the swinger basically because uh-huh. she she was doing so much motorcycle stuff. Yeah, yeah, but she did because yeah, I just remember watching the shot and it's that thing where you watch it and your brain catches up with what you're seeing. You're like, wait a minute, she's actually doing that. That's Anne Margaret doing that motorbike stunt. Pretty cool. And yeah, just with the racing, the I, I mean, I just the note that I made was uh, Viva Lost Death Race, which because <laughs> <laughs> it gets pretty insane, man. This car's blowing I, up, and I, I now want to see a retro throwback 1960s movie made today that is a portmanteau of uh, a mashup of Viva Las Vegas and Death Race. That's <laughs> that's a film I really need to see. You know, set in like a, <laughs> Six string samurai style, like post apocalyptic wasteland. You, right. <laughs> you could actually have Elvis versus Stallone because they both got that kind of upper lip thing going on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with, with, the, with the romantic comedy aspect included and the musical numbers. So they're all like, you know, so, so then we cut away to like a little musical bit where it's like a bunch of like mutants with like fleshing off of them and they're singing like romantic songs. And then we got like, you know, uh, whoever the. Yeah, no, I'm okay. We're Hollywood. Call me. We're gonna make this happen. <laughs> yeah, get 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 Sloan on the wire before he dies. Just like, <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, you want to race me, Elvis? You want to race? <laughs> I'll race the race. Ugh. And then you get an Elvis impersonator. Hey, just get Bruce Campbell. He did Elvis once. So uh, you know, tell you what, man, don't make me use my stuff on you, baby. <laughs> There's the movie. Just get the, guys, just get the guys who did Peter Cushing in Rogue One. Get him to do uh, Elvis. <laughs> yeah, that, that guy. <laughs> yeah. It'll be fine. <laughs> Budget for this was estimated $1 million, and uh, worldwide gross was $9 million. Apparently made like around $5 million It's just alone in the U.S., so big fucking success for 64. Like, that's just... Mm-hmm gross <laughs> for 64 <laughs> dvd info for this uh there's uh warner brothers slash mgm 2007 and 2014 blu-ray releases for this and then there's just a shit ton of dvd releases that came out over the years and vhs too if you're into that so like that this is one of the uh actually one of the early movies from the 60s that actually had like wide like vhs releases when vhs became popular so um well, it's that era. We talked about this uh, a little while ago about the beach party movies where, you know, oh. it seems like there were, you know, there was an era where it's like, oh, get the box set with all the, you know, with all right. the yeah. movies or whatever. And they were like time life, you know, advertisements or whatever on television all the time. So it doesn't surprise me that this guy kind of, you know, it's, uh, you know, today where, you know, today, basically everybody who was a fan of this uh, is dead. Uh, when <laughs> ran, which is not quite true, but uh, I don't think any of our audience is gonna, you know, complain too much about that. But you know, uh, twenty or thirty years ago, when at the height of the VHS era, that this was nostalgia. This was like, oh yeah, my childhood. 
that was the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with Carnal Knowledge. We're back, and we're going to be talking about Carnal Knowledge from 1971. It came at a time when we were all younger. Don't press so hard. Since then, we've been through many changes. What are you so afraid of? Not you. And one thing that put us through those changes was Carnal Knowledge. First Cindy. Oh, no, not Cindy. How about Sandy? How about Cindy and Sandy? Carnal Knowledge. It once shocked America. What kind of man am I? A real man. I wouldn't mind giving her something. Man who inspires worship. I like to be smothered by you. More strong, more masculine. Got your heart. Something has to. Domineering or irresistible. Carnal Knowledge. Jack Nicholson, Anne Margaret, Art Garfunkel, and Candace Bergen in Mike Nichols' Carnal Knowledge. Now its time has come. Directed by Mike Nichols, uh, who you might know from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, and Catch-22. Written by Jules Pfeiffer, uh, who some people might know from the uh, screenplay of Popeye with Robin Williams. <laughs> nice. so, uh, although apparently, he, I, from what I understand, he's more of a uh, playwright, so that's sort of where he made his bones. But uh, apparently this film was originally supposed to be a play. Right. And it, uh, yeah. 
Sorry, and eventually did become one, but uh, yeah. Uh, Jack <laughs> starring as Jonathan First, Arthur Garfunkel, or Art Garfunkel, as you may know him, the the dude with the uh, white afro and uh, <laughs> the white fro. Yeah, the white fro, the or the Jew fro, if you want to be politically incorrect, as Sandy, Candace Bergen as Susan, and Margaret returning as Bobby. Rita Moreau as Louise, Carol no, Kane as Jennifer. I'm sorry, and, it's Rita Moreno. That's one name you do not get to pronounce in this house. Mispronounce in this house. I read it wrong. I apologize. Moreno. Yeah. Did I say Moreau or you did? You did. Oh, Jesus. Uh, and Cynthia O'Neill as Cindy. And uh, the little brief synopsis I did, I grabbed this from uh, Wikipedia. It says, the story follows the sexual exploits of two Hamhurst College roommates over a 25-year period from the late 1940s to the early 1970s. And uh, we'll immediately throw over to Mr. Kit Power for his sort of initial thoughts on this. Mm. Okay. So bear in mind I was watching this because it had Jack Nicholson and Anne Margaret in, as does Tommy. So I wanted to get a sense of those two. So that was my motivation for picking this up. So what did I think of Carnal Knowledge? Uh, well, I think it was mostly a pretty incredible piece of writing. The the dialogue, especially the dialogue between the two men, which forms, you know, the majority of the dialogue in the film, I think it's fair to say, is kind of fittingly well observed, I think, and really captures these two distinct male personality types very well. And they're kind of, you know, the kind of mutually antagonistic friendship that you often can kind of get, especially when you've got, you know, two teenage men thrown together in the kind of situation where they are, because they start off as uh, their roommates, right, at a college, they're sort of dorm mates. So, yeah, Amherst, um, I think. Like, yeah. 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 So that stuff is, you know, the writing is is just, as I say, it's, it's excruciatingly good. And I, I use that word because it is also excruciating because they're deeply unpleasant people. But we'll get to that in a minute. Nicholson's, I think, great. I had a bit of a problem with him as a 17-year-old because he was clearly twice that age at the point. Of <laughs> God, he looked 40 in college. Like, what the fuck? And he just can't. Yeah, you just can't get past the fact that he's not 18. I mean, he just isn't. <laughs> Garfunkel gets away with it a little better because he does have a kind of youthful face at least yeah um but yeah jack you just look at him you're like dude you're uh you know a mature student at best so that i mean that, that's not his fault that's just that's you know that's that's the nature of the story really but it, it was a little bit jarring jack nicholson was, was 34 33 or 34 yeah was about 30 when they filmed this right i expected absolutely nothing from him as an actor and i actually thought he was good were, i mean he's Based on this, I'd suggest he probably has a fairly limited range, but the character that he's playing, at least for most of the movie, is very squarely within that range, so it works quite well, um, I think. His, especially the, the his college relationship with his uh, first serious girlfriend. I bought his awkwardness. I, 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 it was, uh, it was again painful, uh, but but well performed. Yeah, the 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 two the two women in the cast both did great jobs. I thought um, they both played their parts well in different ways. Obviously, I was focused mainly on Anne Margaret. I was amazed by how different she was from the other performances I've seen her do. Right. Uh, it gave me a sense she's a real kind of chameleon. She's very. There was a real sense of desperation about her in this. Actually, from from the first time you meet her, you can see how you could see throughout the initial courtship between her and Nicholson, her own intelligence warring with her desire. You know, she wanted him, but she you could tell from their first conversation she knew this guy was not actually going to be any good for her. 
but she wanted him. And seeing that and seeing her play that was it was quite an astonishing piece of acting, I think. Again, especially in those in those early courtship scenes. Later on, of course, she starts to get depressed and that stuff. She she does that very well as well, but it's a different it's a different kind of performance. So it's I think incredibly well written. It's well acted. It's I'd say competently directed. I don't I didn't see any particular flair with the direction that I can recall, but it was it, the storytelling flowed well and. Overall, I absolutely fucking hated it and I never want to see it again. And I kind of resent the amount of time I spent watching it because it was just so miserable. It just made me feel horrible to watch it because it's four very unhappy people making each other very, very unhappy and being horrible to each other and being miserable. And it was spectacularly well made. And it just, and I, I'm never going to watch it ever again. <laughs> all right daniel i actually kind of apologize because i saw this uh once last night i i would actually love to see it again um i agree it is this is a film about deeply unpleasant people but i don't think it's an unpleasant film i think it's a a film that really has something to say and if i'm apologizing it's because i don't necessarily know exactly what it's saying this is probably, I mean, this may be the actually the most sort of uh, complex characterization of anything we've done on this podcast. And we've done some really amazing films on this podcast. It is a deeply observed character study. I would argue that this really is a film about uh, Jonathan, about Jack Nicholson's character, that uh, Sandy, I mean, the, the we sort of start off thinking it's going to be sort of a like Chad versus Virgin kind of, you know, stereotypical like sexual exploits kind of film. And it, and it becomes a lot more than that, or it becomes something very different than that. Um, it really is trying to get at those sort of basic stereotypes and to give us a hint of what's really going on underneath because in his own way, I mean, I would, I would argue that Sandy, um, Art Garfunkel's character, is even more fucked up uh, and even more toxic than Jonathan. And again, that's saying something, uh, you know, mm. saying something mm-hmm. uh, about about Sandy at that because Jonathan uh, is is himself uh, deeply, deeply messed up as a as a person, uh, and particularly in his relationships with women. Sandy uh, spends his time. Uh, you know, being kind of the nice guy, but like underneath you can tell, especially in sort of that middle segment and then towards the end, I mean, he's certainly not behaving in a way that's actually respectful towards uh, the people he wants to fuck. He's just kind of pretending to do that as a way of getting to fuck them, you know? But that's also sort of like, you know, you kind of get the sense and uh, this may be sort of a modernist, you know, a 2018 kind of looking back on it, you can definitely see that there are, that you know, the film is really about this sort of toxic masculinity. It's about this way that these men behave and the way that that's programmed into them and the way that, you know, the kind of patriarchal structures of the society are um, kind of inhibiting what really would be the best option for everybody, which is uh, in 1946 or 47, whenever this film supposed to start, really this should be a polytriad, you know, <laughs> like clearly... <laughs> Uh, clearly Candace Bergen's character is uh, getting something very different out of, out from these two men. And, uh, you know, they like each other well enough and, and just nobody seems to kind of be aware of that. And it kind of leads to heartbreak and life ruin. And that's sort of the, the problem with monogamy and patriarchy as far as I'm concerned. I, I really do view it on that level, or at least uh, monogamy and patriarchy as, or patriarchy is one thing, but monogamy as a sort of social norm. Ultimately, what we see is the kind of ruin that these lives are, are put into 
based on the fact that like nobody really knows how to talk about sex. I mean, uh, you see this kind of opening conversation and uh, Jonathan and Sandy, like they talk constantly about sex, but ultimately they're not really talking about, like, they're both posturing, you know, in, yeah. in terms of, and you see that over and over again. I really love the performances. All the performances are great in this. And Margaret is phenomenal. It's really interesting to see her kind of, you know, play not the sex pot, but play a, a someone who's sort of playing at being a sex pot. Right. Candace Bergen, I think, I think it, would be really easy for us to overlook her uh, yeah. in terms of uh, performances because Anne Margaret's so good. But I think she has, if anything, an even more difficult role to play and that she has to be sort of the first love of these guys. She has to be the person who is sort of the object of desire, but at the same time, she's playing this character who is, uh, you know, has her own needs and has her own kind of fucked up qualities. Um, right. One of the things I really like about the film is that we see Jack Nicholson is not just this sort like like he talks to uh Art Garfunkel and he sort of is playing up the like, oh I just like the girls, I just wanna, you know, like fuck them or whatever. Like he's he's just very kind of he plays up the crudity of his sexual desires. But you know, when he actually is with women, you see that he he has a you know, he has a confidence, but he also has a more sensitive side. He has a deeper kind of thing that's going on in him. And um, that's what people respond to. That's what the women who are attracted to him respond to. It's not necessarily the the sort of the bravado side. It's, it's, the, it's the deeper kind of elements of it. I like that. I like the fact that he's not just a jerk, that there, that there are really positive qualities to him. And you can see Candace Bergen's character would have been happier hanging out, you know, like marrying Jack Nicholson's character, you know, the, but... Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 a really complicated uh, kind of three-part, four-part character study. And it ends, and I hope we do talk about that ending. I think it, I think there's some really interesting stuff going on there. Um, but it is something I definitely, you know, I actively want to revisit this, not because I enjoyed the experience of watching it as much as, like, I need to kind of give this a, another, another pass through to kind of really understand what's going on. And I think it's a really deep and rich text that enjoy is a complicated word to use, but I... Uh, <laughs> really got a lot out of it yeah for me uh first time watching just like uh you dan i'm definitely gonna have to rewatch this because there's definitely a lot more to pick up from this film and i didn't find it maybe as off-putting as kit did but this is the sex comedy series we just tend to pick films sort of off the basis of you know it's his comedy drama and it's has a lot to do with sex and this film sort of fits that bill, but not so much comedy. Like I could see you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't pair this with the beach party. You wouldn't pair no. this with, uh, <laughs> with the beach girls or hard bodies or joysticks. You know. I can not, not I can, necessarily a double feature. You, you're going to enjoy. I can, I could see where that label mistakenly is put on this because a lot of the dialogue is very sharp and witty and it is kind of got a rhythm to it that you could sort of translate as, funny but this film is actually a fucking tragedy it's a modern like greek tragedy of epic proportions for the most part these two guys are sort of the creepy truth of half the cast of animal house these guys are i mean it i sorry not to i'm gonna interrupt you slightly i'm just gonna say watching these two back to back it's very easy to see that like the jack nicholson character is basically the elvis character from viva las vegas just viewed through a more realistic lens like right. this, is, this guy is yeah, yeah you know yeah they're they're both really sexually insecure males they can't treat women as human beings and i i just say this like ironically 
in a lot of more of the goofy sex comedies we watch, the males actually end up having a character arc where they actually grow up to some degree. Uh, but these two, they never really do. They they're kind of stunted, and I think they're kind of. I think it's kind of a comment on sort of the the social mores in the 1940s, where they're sort of stuck in that sort of idea of what a man's supposed to be and what a woman's supposed to be. Like, I think that makes it really interesting for the Candace Bergen character where she seems like she's that ideal of like the perfect 1940s woman that they're supposed to go after, but she has these yearnings underneath of being something more. And I don't think she quite fully understands what she wants to do and what wants to be. But at the same time, you know, she's, yeah, I'll fuck both of them, you know, and, and, and see what happens. It's, it's just kind of interesting, like the, the passage of years in this, these two stay sort of stunted, even though they put on sort of like the pretext of progressing through the years. But they're still listening to the same music. They're still listening to those old sort of big band songs whenever you hear something on the radio with them it's like either classical music or big band or whatever like just sort of a a telling little they're still stuck in that moment even though art garfunkel grows a mustache by the end of the film and dresses like a hippie yuppie kind of dude and he's dating a very young carol so Kane, dates, which, dates you a know. girl young enough to be his daughter yeah 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 but i mean <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like the sexual repression of the 1940s is just it sets them on a terrible path where the sexual revolution really never happens for them it, it this is this is almost like a weird counterpoint to like bob carol ted and alice oh yeah Definitely. The last time we did the uh, sex comedy series, that was probably the most thoughtful, interesting film we did in in that series, really. The the one to really think about. And I think this is kind of, this is that film for us, for this segment of the sort of sex comedy yeah, well, series. Well, I, I was thinking, sorry, kid, I know you, I don't know if you've seen Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice uh, or listened to our episode on it, but, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely thought about that. And, uh, you know, there is a sort of fantasy element to Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice as well. I mean, this is relentlessly focused on sort of the real human interactions, whereas I think even, you know, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is sort of the uh, slightly, you know, it's the stylized kind of fun movie version of... It's, it's more know, glib than this. Yeah. You know, um, and, and I feel like what we're getting is... I guess one of the criticisms that I have of the film is that I don't really know exactly when the middle section, which is sort of the meatiest portion of the film is supposed to be set. And so I don't know quite how to take it because if you think it's like maybe 10 years, out, like if you think the first section is in 47 mm-hmm. and then the middle section is like 10 years later in 57, then it feels a little, you know, it feels one way, but if you think maybe it's like much later, it's actually more like 67, you know, then you know there, there's a, there's this very real sea change that's kind of happening around that yeah, time. Yeah, I'd, I'd and say. I feel like I feel like the, sh- the the movie doesn't give me a clear signpost of how I'm supposed to sort of interact with these characters within a social milieu. Whereas the the sort of the final segment, which is the shortest, is obviously sort of meant to be modern day, which is you know mm-hmm. kind of post sexual revolution, and you kind of see that in the architecture and the uh, sort of the design of the room that they're in and the uh, mm-hmm. the clothes. Like everything is very like up to that like hip moment, you know, like it, it feels like some of that stuff would be very comfortable in like, you know, she killed an ecstasy or something, you know, it's like right, very, right. Like, like, although uh, Jonathan is the one who doesn't progress. Like the only thing that gives a hint that he's in the seventies is his sideburns are a bit longer. That's about right. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I think in that final sequence, it's clear that, you know, Art Garfunkel, what he's doing is sort of embracing the fashion 
and sort of like almost almost a behest of his girlfriend. I mean, it just feels like he's just kind mm-hmm. of following these women around, you know, because he wants to fuck them. And I mean, it's not like I mean, I don't know. It's not. It's hard to summarizing it in that in those terms makes it sound really kind of like the film is saying something awful about you know kind of gender relations or whatever. And I don't think I. I'm not necessarily sure that's not true, but I'm not actually saying that. I think the film is complicated enough, and that's that's one of the reasons I want to revisit it. I want to see what it's really actively saying versus what I'm kind of reading into it or what I'm able to read into it. I think it's a complicated film, and I think it's definitely worth seeing. Well, from my first watch of this, I sort of get the feeling that the, the film isn't necessarily... like It's definitely making very strong points about the different characters, but I don't think it's necessarily damning anyone more than anyone else in the film. Like it, it, if mm-hmm. it feels like it's trying to treat everyone really fairly, which is, which is it's, interesting. There, there's a, you know, it's closely observed. And I put that in, in quotes, which means uh, basically it's more focused on characters than it is on sort of larger circumstances or larger ideas. It's about these characters in this moment which is a great way to write, but at the same time, when you are writing something that's sort of like in some period in history and you're writing that, it does sort of have the effect of not necessarily, you know, it feels like maybe the writing doesn't necessarily consider the effects of the kind of larger uh, sociopolitical realities or wants us to read into it or, you know, maybe it just wants to leave it ambiguous, which is fine as well. I just, I don't know, I really am that's kind of the, the thing that I'm curious about is like, you know, is it, is it really actively trying to say this is the ruin of the sexual revolution or is it trying to say, which I think is a fairer and more accurate reading. It seems like because it is looking back to uh, at that point, you know, kind of 25 years, 30 years back, you know, to the late forties and saying like, yeah, there were, you know, dudes sitting in their dorm rooms talking about getting hand jobs then too. And, you know, Maybe that's something that has its toxic elements, but is okay. And we shouldn't pretend like it's just teenagers today that are doing that. You know, I will say that, you know, and I'll speak for myself and no one else has to chime in on this, that, you know, I was, a, I was a, you know, a white male teenager in a dorm room once. And those conversations were something that like I participated in quite regularly. You know, yeah, Like this sure. is, this is uh, very much, uh, you know, just kind of part of the reality. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's a really complicated portrait. Sorry. I'm talking too much. Sorry. Uh, Kit, I haven't heard from you in a, in a bit, so yeah. Uh... yeah, it's okay. I'm just thinking about. I mean, I think that um, I think about what you had to say about whether or not Sandy or Jonathan was the more fucked up character, and I, <laughs> it's a really interesting because I can see your point where you could say Sandy's the more messed up. Sandy's certainly the more repressed. I think that's uh, that's inescapable. I found Nicholson slash Jonathan's seduction slash manipulation of Susan though just man it just really really upset me you know the fact that just Mm. the way he kind of callously exploited his friendship with sandy to get an understanding of the kind of things that susan was looking for in a guy and then that amazing jump cut that goes from you know him getting from sandy oh you know she thinks i'm really sensitive she thinks i really care about this stuff blah 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 whatever and then nicholson sitting in a car with her saying you know, just giving her this spiel of complete bullshit that's psychologically tailored to fit with what he thinks now based on what he's heard from Sandy she's after. And I found that manipulation in order to position himself to have sex with her before his friend does, by the way, which I think is significant. Um, And then tell his friend about it, but not tell him who he slept with. I mean, that is just 
Oh, it's brutal. And then to build this like fake relationship that he like talks up for, you know, something like weeks. I mean, you know, we don't get a sense of the time frame, but I think my defense of Jonathan is more in that middle section to where, uh, and this is the Anne Margaret section. So maybe we should uh, move on and talk about this a bit more, you know, in that, in that sort of opening section of the middle section, he's talking about how like, I barely bed 12 women a year anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, Hey, Hey, same, same. I get, Middle ages, you know, feel the man pain. Yep. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. You you get the sense that he's maybe not trying to turn over a new leaf, but at least he's sort of recognizing his sort of place in the world. You also, I mean, that middle section is basically all about his impotence. That after his, uh, you know, at that point, he is kind of not able to get it up anymore. And um, without any criticism of uh, that in real life or or any comment on that at all, I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable thing that happens, particularly as you get older. You know, in the film, it's definitely uh, portrayed as a sort of, you know, uh, lacking it's it's revealed as a sort of lack uh, of the Jack Nicholson's character that he's that there's something kind of wrong in his sort of emotional relationship with women because he's sure. not really able to get it up um which kind of comes into the uh, the final uh, the final segment the, the shortest segment but <laughs> what i find is interesting is that his relationship with bobby who's Anne margaret's character it's not based on manipulation. I mean, it kind of is at the first, but I mean, they really do just kind of sit and they have this conversation and like, neither is really like, they're, they're both kind of messed up people. They have messed up histories and uh, they're both just kind of like, yeah, I like fucking you. You like fucking me. We get along together. Uh, let's kind of make this happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they both, they both want different idealized sort of lifestyles and they're not communicating that to each other. Right. Right. Obviously they're not communicating and that's uh, really, that's kind of the tragedy of it because they could probably have made it work uh, really well had they been able to have that conversation. And that's, again, like, I don't know exactly when this is supposed to be happening and, and what's yeah. kind of going on outside. I mean, almost that entire segment takes place within that fucking apartment. <laughs> like, right. you know. and, but, but here's the thing. And here's what I get from like this just amazing outburst from Jack Nicholson where, you know, where he just flips and they have their argument, which is the biggest scene in the film. I get the feeling that they couldn't have made it work because at that point, Jack Nicholson is just too far gone. At that point, he just has such an incredibly dire negative idea of what women are and what they're about that there's no possible way Bobby could ever just live up to his expectations. Like there, there's, there's no way that he, she could be the wife for him. And I don't think he wants it to be quite frank. I think he, he he doesn't under he he sort of he runs away from the idea of any sort of like lasting commitment like it, it hmm. you you can be my side piece for twenty years but we'll never be married it, like yeah. he says he says at one point I'm too busy I, I don't know the exact quote but quote but it's like uh, I'm too busy uh, doing me like I'm too busy yeah being concerned about my concerns to be concerned about your concerns you know and why aren't you why aren't you happy just being in the home and and making the bed and shit like i bring money to the house do you want an extra hundred dollars for making the bed instead of just sleeping in it all day you know like at that point i think he's just too fucking far gone well yeah no absolutely certainly at that point i, I guess it's more sort of like my defense is more at the beginning of the relationship like it feels like he has this moment to where there's a real honesty that's happening and where like there is this sort of way to build and they both see each other clearly and then like kind of as things progress it just kind of becomes 
you're right. He has a different idea about what this is going to be than she does. And mm-hmm. uh, neither one of them is really able to communicate that. And you see that all the time in real life relationships. Right. Um, well, but also people change, right? I mean, that's the other thing yeah. that no one likes to talk about with long-term relationships. You can go in wanting one thing and then discover two, five, ten years down the line, you actually now want something else. And, you know, if you're lucky, people change with you or you find accommodations or you whatever. I mean, if you're, you know, or you, you know, if you're not in a monogamous relationship, there's other things you can do. But you know what I mean? Like there's that aspect is that's something that happens. I mean, I, my read of uh, of Bobby for what it's worth is that she she went into it with open eyes. I think if she hadn't been made to quit work, she probably would have been happy. I think actually yeah, that's the pivotal moment that starts to screw it up because then she's like, well, if I'm not anything else, then I have to find the role that's going to fulfill me and that's going to fit. And that's when the whole thing starts to spiral out of control. And the weird part is Jonathan says he doesn't want that, but he pushes her into that role. You know, he says he doesn't want to get married. He's always, you know, he just wants that kind of exciting, you know, first six months relationship all the time, but he's the one who makes the quit work or talks her into quitting work. And it, it's so it's such an obviously well, self-destructive he, role he as wants well as that it? he wants that from her but then he won't like sort of give her like she's asking for a child yeah, yeah. not in so many words but that's basically what she's asking for like you know yeah. they, you know she she's actively not saying that except when she does but then she backs off from it <laughs> my read yeah. is she's really like look if i'm gonna be here and i'm gonna you know i want a child yeah. to take care of you know yeah. i don't know that Based on what we see of her character, she'd be any happier as a as a sort of a single mother, or not a but a, but a stay at home mother. Stay at home mother. She would have been, uh, you know, otherwise, and that might have made things worse. But that's certainly the thing that she wants, and yet they can't have this conversation because for Jack Nicholson's character, you know, that ties it down. It makes it this thing that he can't be. It makes it this, you know, it makes it real in a way that he can't have, and that's and that's just a level of responsibility. And I and I, I find that uh, fascinating on a character level. But what I find so interesting about that is that's true, but it's also the inverse of what was happening in the relationship with Susan, where it was precisely her inability to connect with him on a deep enough emotional level that ultimately led him to break that up. Mm. You know, you know, that's, that's what's so fascinating to me about Nicholson's character. It's like, he is just determined to destroy every relationship he's a part of. Or is that, or is it that he got so badly burned by the Susan thing? And that lack of, you know, he, he he started off from a physical place, developed an emotional relationship which she couldn't reciprocate. And that is what actually burned him against, you know, and turned him into the person he was when he met Bobby. I don't, I mean, that's, it could go either way. I think that the story would allow that. But that's, I find that aspect of his character absolutely fascinating. Well, Susan, I, Susan's, the way I read it, Susan's kind of almost another Jonathan in okay. a way, because she's, Again, she's trying to burst out of these sort of societal roles that have been put on her as, you know, the the kept perfect wife kind of ideal. Like, this is the girl you got to marry and get a white picket fence and 2.5 kids with and shit. And she doesn't really want that from what I sort of gathered from from her performance. Like, she's, she's actually trying to explore and break out of those sort of ideas. And that's exactly the opposite of what Jack Nicholson was looking for at that point when he got emotionally connected to her, which I, I kind of agree with you. I think he did get emotionally connected and it's like, he couldn't have her. And that just kind of like yeah. soured his future relationships. 
Well, reading the reading it as a sort of like failed poly thing, and you know, I apologize for bringing this into it necessarily. No, it's I know okay. That, you know, kind of brings it, but uh, you know, you see this a lot where you know, you know, people get jealous of other people in in these kinds of things because you're getting something from this other person that you're not getting from me, or you're giving this person something that you're not giving to me. And why is this not happening? Is there something wrong with me, et cetera? And like you know, the way to solve that is often to do it with empathy and communication and, you know, and the situation is not set up to allow them to do that at all. It, in fact, it actively inhibits yeah. that. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, that's, you know, to me, again, I, I hate to kind of bring it to that, but that's kind of the great tragedy of the film because I feel like the, you know, between the three of them in that kind of opening sequence, there was a real like sense of, oh, if they were all kind of okay with this being a thing that they're doing, they could probably have all kind of made these different aspects work, you know, that, you know, uh, Garfunkel's character could have been, you know, less of a kind of toxic dick bag, you know, like pretend <laughs> to respect women. And that Nicholas's character could have let his guard down and thought like, Oh, actually I am interested in women as emotional creatures as opposed to just, you know, a set of measurements and Candace Bergen's character could have pursued her, you know, kind of interpersonal, uh, you know, or at least her, her kind of career goals and her academic goals. And, you know, could have been that kind of like uh, in the forties, it's hard to say, uh, I hate to say proto-feminist, but a proto-feminist, you know, kind of, kind of icon, kind of leader and um, still have had this, uh, these relationships and kind of accepted that as well and um the fact that they can't talk to each other the fact they have these sort of like what i would consider artificial walls up is sort of the great tragedy here you know and it leads to Uh, all the other stuff essentially what you're saying is that if they had been open to a three-way way way back then they wouldn't have never never had all these problems later on because uh (laughs) well and and i want to i want to be clear about this there were definitely like free love societies of things happening in like elite colleges in the late 40s you know this didn't this wasn't discovered for the first time in like 1969 in san francisco you yeah, know yeah, yeah. um and particularly at kind of elite colleges in the aftermath of world war ii there was a ton of fucking going on and a ton of conversation about this and it was just sort of like underground and so i kind of feel like maybe the film knows that and it uh Oh, I think think it does. I think it makes a point to show like by near the end, like the end of the second segment where Jack Nicholson sort of proposes a wife swap situation and how badly that goes. Right. It it, it kind of shows how repressed all of them are. Like how, but, but again, it's because they're not communicating. And in fact, even yeah. the, uh, the girlfriend at that point, um, what's her name? Uh, in the middle uh, section there is, is that Cindy, uh, Cindy, 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 yeah. Cindy. Um, she even says, well, if you, uh, you know, come by, you know, not with my boyfriend, you know, kind of sitting right nearby, then maybe you'll get a different, you know, yeah. response, um, which is a sign that like all these people kind of, you know, these are upper class white people, you know, at least upper yeah. middle class mm-hmm. white people like this. This is not something new to them. Well, one's a so, doctor, yeah. one's a lawyer. This, this is almost the uh, Raquel Welch segment of the Queens. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this, this is, in a way, it is a, a deep deconstruction of the kinds of films that we've been watching. And I think that's interesting, you know. Yeah. I think my central issue, I was, I was thinking about what you were saying there about, particularly about the character of Susan. I think there's a telling moment there with, with you know, Nicholson's feeling of their line of bullshit in the car and they're sitting there together. And, uh, you know, I can't remember which one of them says it first, but one of them says, I, I think I might be a communist. 
and uh, the other <laughs> says, yeah, me too. And of course, the thing that's interesting about that is that Jonathan's obviously just from Jonathan. That's clearly a line. Yeah, but from Susan, right. clearly, you know, Susan clearly is thinking about the boundaries that are around her. And you know, I mean, to to say something like that in in that at that period is clearly to push yourself beyond what is acceptable to you know mainstream right, polite because society. Before, before that, she says, "I'm a Republican." That's right, so, and and she's only saying that, and you can totally get she's only saying that because that's what she was brought. That's the household she yeah. was brought up in. Because what she means is my parents are Republicans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I do. I, I do think that like maybe I'd have to rewatch it and kind of like see what it is in context. Uh, that means something sure. slightly different in the '40s than it means uh, today, clearly. But uh, right, for sure. Yeah, no. For I mean, sure. Well, and and I think that the thing is that college is a place where people kind of try on different identities and they try on different ideas of themselves. And yeah. again, uh, the idea of kind of in 1971, casting that back 25 years, presumably for, you know, kind of a mainstream film audience uh, does speak to the idea that, you know, it. I think it really is trying to say like, none of this is new, <laughs> you know, like the hippies <laughs> weren't invented at this, you know, it feels very rooted in a particular place in time to me. And I think that that's kind of one of the interesting things for me. Yeah. So should we talk about like sort of the final segment of kernel knowledge, get to the, basically to the uh, epilogue of Jack Nicholson's character here. I think that's a good idea. It's a weird ass kind of punchline slash whatever. Yeah. um, Epilogue. It's kind of a coda. Yeah. Coda is a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I, I found interesting about the film is that it, and I mean, actually, this probably does speak to the direction and the, and the skill with it. There's no overt signaling to let you know that time has shifted. Right. Um, and yet it's very, very quickly apparent that it happens e- at each segment. You know, it doesn't take long at all for you to figure out normally a couple of lines of dialogue and you realize, oh, OK, we've jumped forward. Well, it, it fades to white. It does a very specific kind of visual thing in between which is mm-hmm. easy to miss if you're not like kind of looking for it, but it doesn't do the sort of modern thing of saying like Los Angeles, 1972, you know? Right. Right. 10 years later. Right. It doesn't do that thing. And I, I mean, I admired that, you know, I admired that both for the fact of trusting your audience to come along with it. And also the skill with which it was done. So that it was actually easy to follow. I mean, that was, you know, that's legitimately good filmmaking. That's a non-trivial thing to pull off. And this film manages it twice. So that's that was pretty impressive. But it's such a weird cut too, isn't it? Because it's from the overdose, right? Yeah. Yep. Which is such a brutal place to jump forward. Like one scene. I think there's one scene in between, but it's really just kind of a little bit of dialogue. Right. Yeah, because there's the Anne-Margaret overdose scene. And then there's the little segment with Jack Nicholson going through his quote-unquote conquests on the slideshow with with, uh, Garfunkel and his very young girlfriend. And then there's the conversation between those two on the street. And And then it moves directly to Nicholson with the hooker in her apartment. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I felt that whole jump forward. That's the last, I mean, that's all taking place in a different time frame, isn't it? That's, that's the, that's it, it feels, yeah. it feels like it's years removed. Yeah. Like, it feels like he's alone and he's not even friends with, uh, Sandy anymore. I mean, I, I have to start with who the fuck creates a slideshow of all the women they fucking slept with. A really damaged, I, misogynist I, piece of shit. Does I kind of have the feeling in 1971 this is uh, meant to be a 
and based on who these people are, it's meant to be sort of a like an artsy, like something he's wanting to uh, kind of take to some artist collective and show and like talk about. Oh, okay. Like, I was just going to say, for me, it almost feels like, so, you know, he's, he's still been, he's maintained his friendship with Sandy and Sandy's the more quote unquote progressive of the friends where he's, you know, he, he's taking on the style of the era Mm -hmm. and it almost feels like, oh, so your newest chick is a hippie and she's into artsy stuff. Well, let me show you my slideshow. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing, yeah. like in, in the most creepy fucking slideshow you could ever hope to see. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I feel like it's so. There's a slide of Susan in it. Yes, which there is. makes mm-hmm. me think this is a pre-existing thing. And the yeah. fact that he has kind of the the uh, you know ballbusters. What is, what's the thing called? Ballbusters ball on parade, isn't it? Ballbusters <laughs> on parade. I feel like I feel like it's a thing that he's like taking around to these artist collectives, and he's being like sort of one of those like. Oh. MRA douchebags who like yeah. walks into like you know feminist uh, spaces and is oh I have like an art thing I'd like to show you and I'd like you know and if you're gonna be inclusive you're gonna include me in this and I I don't know I feel like it's uh, I mean one of the things about the film is that it is uh, deeply ambiguous and it, it really yeah. does kind of a lot of different interpretations and I and I think that part part of the way it does that is by not giving us concrete explanations and part of the way it does it is that it kind of gives us really pertinent details just in sort of a line of dialogue and I really like that about the film I actually admire the film for doing that but this is kind of one of those things where we don't really know what this what this slideshow is supposed to be but it's deeply weird and deeply fucked up for him to be like showing it here. <laughs> um, I kind of get the feeling he's like, look at this new thing I made. I'm going to like take it around and shows it to his kind of still kind of his best friend, even though we may not have talked to him for very long. And yeah. uh, I really like the idea that his girlfriend is kind of, his, all right, I'm going to, I need to leave now <laughs> You know, when it's over. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, his presentation is just so fucking disgusting because but, he's but like, he's, he's, this he's cunt got, did this to me and this bitch did this. And it's like, he's holy got, shit, he's got this pre-written pattern for it. Yeah. You know? like, it doesn't yeah. feel like, you know, he's just kind of like commenting on the girls as he, it feels like he's almost reading it off of note cards to me, right. which may be kind of a problem with the writing, but I, you know, it I feels like he's done this slideshow himself in, in just alone in his room over and over again. <laughs> I like to think he's sitting and like, uh, masturbating his flaccid penis in his, <laughs> in his room, you know, clicking. And this is the one that said this, this is the one we dated for three weeks, you know? Like, yeah. Th- this is, and, and, uh, uh Candace Bergen's character gets a, a Susan, lot more, Susan, Susan yeah. gets a lot more attention when Sandy isn't there. When yeah, like yeah. you're right, like you mentioned, when Sandy is there, it's like, Oh, well, that, that one's a mistake. And then he moves yeah. on. He just, he just kind of moves on, you know, yeah. No. I mean, there is also an interesting thing where, like, he, either he was outrageously lying to Sandy at the at the beginning of the second sequence, you know, at the beginning of the, um, I guess you'd call it the Bobby sequence before they meet, where they, you know, they meet at the, it's Central Park, isn't it? And they're watching the ice skaters. Right. And he's going on about the, the massive parade of women he slept with, which is not reflected in this slideshow. So... Yeah. Is it a greatest hits kind of deal, or was he massively exaggerating his sexual prowess to Sandy? I, I think a bit of column A, a bit of column B, probably. You know, but that's interesting yeah. too because it's. I mean, if you think about it, certainly the early ones, he's talking about like the first girl he ever kissed. He's talking about you know, it feels a little high fidelity to me. You know, in mm. the in the sense that he's kind of going through high fidelity as a film we should cover in the fourth season of our uh, sixth season, <laughs> by the way. 
Um, I just thought of that. Like, holy shit, do I have a lot to say about high fidelity? Anyway, um, it feels a little bit like he's uh, he's kind of going through. And yeah, that's interesting. Like the idea that really these are the only women he slept with, or at least these are the only mm. women he has photographs of. And they're not they're not kind of intimate photographs that he has. And this is like pre Facebook. He can't go on and like yep. find a childhood photo or find a, like a relevant photo. This is, some, this is just what he has, which also influences it. And I feel like maybe that's a, uh, you know, it's sort of artistic license on the part of the filmmakers to say, Oh, well he just kind of has these photos because, because otherwise mm. like he went and tracked down photos of the girl. He like saw the ass of when he was 12 in 1971. That's even creepier than it is now because it requires <laughs> right. a massive amount of effort has got into the acquisition of this photo. Um, See, that's why, that's why I find that interpretation more interesting, you know, I like the yeah. idea. or maybe like, I mean, if you want to be slightly more generous or maybe split the difference, maybe he was like collecting trophies from a very early age. You know yeah, what I mean? Like maybe, well, maybe this I is collect, a lifelong. Hold on, hold on, hold on, Kit. Collecting trophies is never not going to sound like a serial killer. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, well, that was my thought on this. It, it feels very yeah. much like if, if he was just a couple steps too far in one direction he really is a serial killer but i I had the feeling watching this slideshow like you know what half these girls in this in this slideshow you've probably never touched and and Mm. i i get that feeling because at this point he's it's it's pretty much established he's fully impotent at this point and most women at this point if they went into a relationship with him there would be no sex like it would end because there would be no sex and it just feels like he's just putting them in his parade of resentments because, you know, they, oh, this, this bitch was so cold. This bitch was an ice queen. This, this one did this. I banged her on her boat. Yeah, sure you did. Um, <laughs> no, you, you, you took a picture of her, you know, you, you had maybe like a brief couple weeks relationship with the, with, the, with her or whatever, but otherwise, no, like by the time we get to the end of the film, it seems pretty clear that, unless the woman is someone he's paying to tell him the things he wants to hear. He can't even get it up anymore. Yeah. So I'd like to uh, just compliment the film on its, um, (laughs) on its recognition of 2018 uh, (laughs) metrics uh, metrics, uh, by which it uh, has uh, guest star guest starring roles by two actresses who are, uh, currently in um, prominent guest star roles on Netflix series uh, because Carol <laughs> Kane is in uh, One Day at a Time and uh, Rita Moreno, or pardon me, Rita, Rita Moreno is in One Day at a Time and Carol Kane is in The Incredible uh, Kimmy Smith and uh, both of oh, which yeah. are shows that I've seen quite a bit of and both of which are very funny. In fact, One Day at a Time is actually one of the better sitcoms that's out there right now and Rita Moreno, who is now like 80 years old, is kind of amazing in it. <laughs> And I uh, just wanted to throw that in there for the audience. Rita Moreno is the sort of prostitute who ends the film. I'm reminded, first of all, uh, she, I mean, at this point, she would have been known mostly for West Side Story. And I think it's interesting that the film gives us these two kind of very glamorous actresses who are in kind of big Hollywood pictures who uh, both kind of play kind of broken down sex pots. Uh, yeah. to some degree in the film and Rita Moreno and uh, Anne Margaret and I and I don't mean that in a in negative sense towards the no. actresses or towards sex workers but just uh, you know the film is very honest in kind of the portrayal of that you know once you get to a certain age like this is kind of the thing that you're doing because we live in this society and isn't it awful I was reminded a bit of the uh, of Blue Velvet 
of uh, Isabella Rossellini's kind of relationship that she has with um, Dennis Hopper. Yeah, Frank Booth. In yep. the way that she uh, kind of sets up the chair in that particular kind of way, in the way that they have this ritual that they go through. And in that film, I mean, my reading of that is that that's a, you know, kind of very particular kind of BDSM coercive relationship that might have started uh, as something uh, non coercive to begin with. But here it's clearly a, it's a cash transaction, you know, and she's mm-hmm. to read the script as it is written, you know really the way that we know that that's true is because, you know, he chastises her for not reading it as written and uh, then kind of comes back and they kind of do the thing. It's clear that this is, this is where the film wants to leave the, leave us with this character. It wants us to kind of respond to him as a man who is only able to kind of like find his full sexual fulfillment as this is being said to him. I kind of want, like, how do you guys feel about the content of that speech and, how we read that how does that how does that knowing that that's what the filmmaker gave us uh kind of play back into our reading of the film yeah i mean i think it kind of it it makes it makes your case that sandy's the more fucked up guy a tougher one <laughs> i because <think. laughs> um, it's it's pretty well, hold, on, hold, on, hold on at this point sandy is fucking an 18 year old hippie girl who yep I think no, has one line of dialogue. So yep. I don't know that going to see a sex worker as therapy is worse than, uh, you know. Yeah. I'm not convinced of the therapeutic value of what's going on in that room, but I, I'm open to the possibility it might be therapeutic, but I'm not, I'm not convinced. I don't know. I mean, I think it kind of, it kind of speaks to, um, there's a horrible i mean what's clever about it i think for me is there's a horrible way in which it does feel like a natural conclusion it feels like the roots of that you know of that situation were were there from the beginning of with nicholson's character the combination of the absolutely callous manipulation in order to obtain physical gratification followed by the dawning realization that it wasn't enough and that what he really wanted was an emotional connection he couldn't have and then his subsequent you know as a result of that or not his his subsequent retreat back to physical carnality and his you know his whole relationship with bobby is a real is is a constant push pull on that on that same spectrum you know he wants to and you can see as much as you see bobby's desire i think you do see at certain points you see jonathan's desire for that kind of actually for that kind of banal you know monogamous reality thing but he can't allow himself to accept that that might be something that he wants to do even just for now like he just it because he's got this investment in this enormous investment in this self-identity as a ladies man right in this self-identity as this kind of very particularly toxic masculine vision of what male sexuality is you know like he is locked into that by this point in his life and it sours the relationship with bobby and i think ultimately it's what leads to him being where he ends up the words that he's hearing there is just it's kind of like it's it's pure uh wish fulfillment it's pure like this is it gets him up because it's the way you know whatever that that vision of the world that he has he thinks this is how it's supposed to be I mean, that was yeah. my take. Mm. They're they're both uh, at, at the end of the movie. They're both lying to themselves. They're they're both that's fair propagating yeah. a falsehood to basically just comfort themselves when really they're both totally gone and damaged at this point. 
Um, yeah, San- Sandy thinks like because I'm like fucking this hippie chick that I have awareness of cultural trends and I'm like quote right, unquote he, male now. Yeah, because yeah, he he talks about she knows so much more about sex or whatever right. than yeah. I could ever you know hope she's to learn. Teaching me, she's teaching me about love, right? That whole yeah. thing. Yeah, they're they're both full of themselves at that point, and yeah. they're both incredibly sad, tragic characters. Uh, especially in in Jonathan's case, where he physically can't get erect unless he has a woman lie to him in a pre-prepared <laughs> speech, like yeah, that yeah. fucking for him at that point. And it's the control too, right? Because that's what yeah. the bit when she gets, you know, when she breaks script and he gets pissed off with her. That's really about. I think I read it as that's really about he must have absolute control over that situation, right? Literally every word she says has to be the correct words, or it doesn't yeah. work for him. She she has to be she has to not just she has to not be a person. She has to be yep. like the character in his head, you know. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and you get, and you get the feeling like he's said this to himself, you know, dick in hand, many many times. Oh, yeah. Time, you know, <laughs> yeah. While years, looking you know. at that photograph of Susan projected on his wall, sure, yeah. and even that stopped working. He's probably got a, like a whole detailed script written out for us. You say this and you do this at this time and yeah. you do this at this other time. And even yeah. then, it's I like, think he like modifies the script like, oh, this is even better. Give the, you know, and then, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and <laughs> she's got it memorized. Like she, she yep. just, she says it, uh, she, like she knows it intimately. And, uh, you know, that's the sign. Yeah. He's visited the same person over and over again. That's a, you know, I, I have never been a sex worker, but like I've told people in that's a, that's a realistic, portrayal yeah. like that right sex right, workers are very often and i you know you kind of make fun of me is saying it's it's therapy but for a lot of for a lot of people this is there there is a therapeutic aspect there is a there is a sense of they're they're getting this in lieu of therapy which i wasn't i wasn't making just to be clear i wasn't making fun i was i was expressing skepticism but that's yeah not, sorry that's sorry i was i was no, uh, i was not criticizing you for sorry i was uh you know in, <laughs> and i mean in, no, no, in no, Jonathan's case it's not even so much therapy as it is survival in this case, like because this is all he has. Like, right. There's nothing right. else he can go to at this point. He's so fucking damaged over just decades of being a shit. But what's fascinating about that to me is so much of that is about his investment in the identity. Yeah. Because actually, you know, he could walk away from it any time. If he just decides, actually, I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. Well, hey, there's but, another way of being a guy in a world that isn't that. But then he's free of all of it. Yeah, but <laughs> he, he has no tools for escaping that identity. No. Though he and well, no, yeah. he and Sandy both have no tools for escaping that sort of preset ideal that they were, you know, ingrained in them mm-hmm. in the in in their early childhood and development, where they're just they have not moved on from the 1940s at all. As much right. as they want to pretend they might have. Well, it's not, they haven't moved on to who they were in the 1940s. They, they're, they're still, I mean, they are emotional man-children. And I think the yeah. film realizes that as opposed to sort of, you know, thinking that's cool. Which I think, uh, you know, th- there is a certain, you know, kind of man-child thing that just is part of pop culture where you're like, oh, you know. And I he's think that's 40, really, but he acts like yeah. he's 18, you know, and that's <laughs> that's kind of awesome. You know. I think that's a really key point too, because Sandy was always Sandy always was uh, kind of, you know, in, invested in whatever was going on at the time. You know, Sandy in all three time zones, Sandy is attempting to be the man of the moment. Right, he's attempting to respond to whatever it appears to be that that masculinity is in that moment. So he's never really got a sense of identity of who he really is. He's never rooted in that because he's always. No. I mean that, 
that incredible monologue he has in the middle segment where he's talking about his sexual relationship with his wife, you know, and it's, Which, it's a we, monologue. We do, we do all the right things. We do all the things oh, that we're God. supposed to do. 15 times we do there's no pressure and you know if we feel it we feel it and if we don't all that and it's just and all of and all of that would have come out of like early 70s like you know joy of sex style right right you know right and this is this is one bit where i think the direction i know uh i know you uh kind of commented on the direction there um lee but i think that the kind of uh close to camera you know sort of direct you know actor looking straight into camera there are a couple of times where that happens and i think there's a thematic connection because in one of them yep. it's jack nicholson talking about his relationships uh and in the other it's um Art garfunkel and i and i think that there is a i'd want to go through and just rewatch those two scenes like back to back and kind of like that's, i would bet there's some parallelism there that's it's that's it's real connection to how this was initially a stage play because yeah. right? those those Absolutely. are totally those are soliloquies like yeah. without a note, right? Well, and yeah, I think, I mean, I, yeah. And I, as 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 was as was commented on earlier, I mean, pretty much the second act, you know, you can see it working on stage just in that flat with those two actors, right? I mean, yeah. that that would work as a as a second act. That would work absolutely fine, as you say. You just have maybe you have, yeah, maybe you have the odd soliloquy uh, in between where you, you know they'd be delivered as monologues. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I can. You can see. I mean, I can see that as a stage set. That flat that would work. It just would. You know. Do we have anything we want to conclude I, with, or can we move I, on to? I feel. I feel like I, I've kind of wrapped up on this. I feel. Uh, I. I feel open ended on the film in general, in <laughs> which is a very open ended film in some ways. Yeah, yeah. I feel. I feel like I don't quite know how I feel on it, uh, which is a sign that. I mean, it's a Mike Nichols film. This is what Mike Nichols does. He, he yeah, kind of has these kind of. Uh, I mean, the, the graduate's some... very open-ended in itself. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he's kind of asking us to kind of look at these people and uh, examine their lives. And uh, I hoped, I would like to think that Mike Nichols, who is now uh, passed on, would be happy with the conversation we've had about this, uh, <laughs> you know, nearly 50-year-old film. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Just some brief trivia here. A scene in which Sandy takes out a condom while in bed with Susan was the very first time a condom had been shown on screen anywhere. Huh. Wow. And and this this film did have some problems with it being like so sexually explicit that uh it has some problems like getting in places. Uh uh one story, a theater manager in Georgia was convicted of obscenity related charges for showing the film due to its frank depictions of sex and nudity especially by 1971 standards, which, you know, in Georgia was probably like 1934 standards. Um, <laughs> the, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the conviction in 74, ruling that the movie was not obscene, and the law that was used to convict the manager was unconstitutional. And yeah, like, there is some nudity. Like, this is probably mm-hmm. one of the only times you see Anne-Margaret semi-nude, and that's basically just her backside, which is very fine, by the way. Uh, but you, you only see, like, her you only see her boobs like in shadow. Like, yeah, it's, it's very tasteful. It is. But you know, you know what's, you know, what's fascinating about that to me though, that, that obscenity ruling and the court case and all that kind of stuff. It's for a movie that is clearly about sex and it very much is about sex uh, and sexuality. It's not a sexy movie at all. No, it's like very. It, it's, there's no. nothing titillating remotely about this fucking film, or I didn't find it anyway. No, no, and no. Margaret, totally, I, I totally backside, agree. notwithstanding. 
I totally um, agree. It's sexually, it's very cold. Very yeah. cold. Mm. Which I, I just find that fascinating. That's because for me, the obscenity trial hangs up. Well, you know, this, <laughs> no one's going to get any gratification out of watching but this I, goddamn I, film. I, I feel like that's. I think that was something <laughs> common with movies in that era where the reputation preceded the actual content. Right. Yeah, and they judged yeah. it on that, right? Sure. It becomes almost the cliche of like, oh, the actress will do nudity in the sort of like quote unquote serious art film. Right. And probably that becomes the selling point of, you know, like a whisper campaign and then kind of later like, you know, people like leaking screen caps on the internet or whatever of like, oh, this is the one where Anne Margaret, you know, does a nudity or whatever. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's a bigger, more complicated topic than I want to get into at this point in this podcast. Yeah. But like, it's, it's very clearly like, this is one of those like kind of early examples of that. And, um, yeah, you know, in, in a lot of ways, Viva Las Vegas is much sexier than this film, even right. though, uh, yeah. Viva Las Vegas cannot Absolutely. really kind of do the thing. It's much less about sex. Like this is a film that's about sex, but it's not like sexy at all. It's hard. Well, to yeah, no. Viva La- Viva Las Vegas. You can see Anne Margaret throwing her hips and her boobs in your face and be excited by it. In this movie, it's yeah. just like, oh god, I feel so sorry for you. This is- although, <laughs> although I think I think the relationship in that kind of the uh, the sort of the nude sequence there, you know, where they are kind of hanging out in the apartment. Mm-hmm. That is that is kind of sexy, like within context. When she, yeah, when can... yeah, the the initial scene where she's laying on the bed and you know she's moving her butt around a little bit, and then it's whoa, like, whoa, oh, doctor. The, this is this is the moment when the film is sexy because this is the moment where these two characters are connecting. This is right, yeah. you know it's only kind of later that all that becomes uh, toxic and you just kind of want to throw up watching it. You know? Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean you know both you know Jonathan and Sandy's initial sex scenes with Susan are are just excruciating to watch. Oh, yeah, and they're yeah, really that's... hard work. It's, it's, like, it's, oh, it's really weird God. considering this is kind of like their first sexual encounter. And they're supposed to be teenagers at that point. And it's yeah. like, Jack Nicholson's clearly 40. And, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's just like, and he's just sort of like grunting on Candace Bergen. And it's like, oh. dude, just yeah. no. <laughs> no. Nothing, nothing good happening here. I, right I like to think that's just how Jack Nicholson fucked throughout, throughout his life. Like, I think that's just, <laughs> like, Jack Nicholson, who like reputationally has like screwed his way through half of Hollywood, yeah. uh, I kind of think that that's still what he does. Like he finds some solid, he gets on top, and he just kind of grunts incoherent. Couple of minutes of grunting for two it? minutes, and you know, I guess you got to do what works for you. This, is, this, this is, and uh, you know, I hate that that. I kind of hate that I said that now. To be on the <laughs> yeah, Jack Nicholson is an old, sick man, Daniel. How dare you? Yeah, that was not a nice thing to say about Jack Nicholson. Uh, I like to think that there are a lot of women who made the very astute career decision that sleeping with Jack Nicholson would be good for their finances. And, that'd be good. Uh, that'd be a good five you know, minutes and for I, their finances. And I, in no way, hold that against the uh, the women involved. <laughs> no, five kidding. minutes, whatever. You know. <laughs> If if I could have a career in Hollywood and get fucked by Jack Nicholson, I would. Like, you know? <laughs> would you let uh, would you let Wolf era Jack Nicholson fuck you? Well, I would let modern era Jack Nicholson. You know. <laughs> yeah, I well, think, yeah, that would probably cut, be my cut over even the quicker. Right? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that'd be like two minutes, and you'd be like, oh, that's that's worth a billion dollars. <laughs> Uh, I think we need to leave this subject behind yeah, now. Moving I think on. Yeah. 
uh, I could keep telling jokes for an hour here, like, but like, there's no need, you know. If yeah, Kit wasn't, if Kit wasn't here, and I and I felt bad for Kit, like having to be involved in this, like, oh, he knew what? No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, Kit Powers blaming us for doing these films in the first place, and he knew what he was getting into. Let's not that's true. Any, let's not, no. you know, give him any slack. I have, I have only myself to blame. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Mike Nichols. Uh, Spent apparently six months looking for the right girl to play Bobby. He he rejected these people: Jane Fonda, Raquel yeah. Welch, Natalie Wood, and Diane Cannon. Wow! Um, so he, he rejected the entire female cast of uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Yeah, exactly. And and then he agreed to see Anne Margaret, uh, who he remembered from being impressed uh, in Kitten with a Whip. Which, which makes sense with for me. Do you do you do you realize, Lee, at this point that I think we've covered more Anne Margaret films than any other actor or actress <laughs> in this podcast? I think I'm totally happy with that. Like, I'm, I'm nothing I, but I, salute I, your I incredible to, taste. That's great. I want to continue with that project, by the way. But like, <laughs> oh no, no, I think that's going to be a theme with this podcast. I mean, this has been a very Anne Margaret centric sex comedy series that we've done. Yeah, yeah, no, no. You know, Anne Margaret, Dorothy Malone, like we we've we keep I've said it before, we keep collecting amazing <laughs> actresses who are underappreciated in the modern pop culture. And we're doing our part to like put that out there. No, so, I'm 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 happy of all our pod- podcast girlfriends. I, I'm quite yeah. I'm, I'm quite good with it. You know, and if they if they ever want to show us a little love, you know, send it back. And Margaret is still alive. Like yeah. she could hear this so, and yeah. say, you know what, good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Margaret, if you want to <laughs> You know, if Anne, uh, if Anne Margaret, I don't even know if Anne Margaret's on Twitter, but if she, <laughs> we'd we'd love a retweet, Anne Margaret. <laughs> if you would love to be on an incredibly obscure uh, movie, if podcast, you would love to get your voice exposed to forty people. Yeah. <laughs> even if you just want to do a promo for us, we would fucking fall over backwards for that shit. But you know, I can only imagine Ann Margaret saying, "Like, if you love movie podcasts, listen to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight." You know, yeah, here's the deal, Ann Margaret. If you if you do a promo, one of these two men will sleep with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> and it's going to be Daniel, by the way. Just saying. It's going to be Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. Yeah, well, I mean, that was obvious. Like, there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm basically a giant slut. I will sleep with anyone, including Jack Nicholson, circa 2018. I am intentionally not Googling a photo of Jack Nicholson, 2018. Because I wouldn't. I'm, I wouldn't. Uh, no. I, I, I'm again. I'm in no way uh, challenging this as a like sort of personal failing. But can you imagine how low Jack Nicholson's balls are now? In <laughs> 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 oh, I, I like to think of like hot air balloon like, and upside down. Like that's kind of yeah. Well, Lee, I'm, I'm glad we moved this conversation on before it got awkward. Yeah, <laughs> That's really it's, it's really it's really good we moved away from this uncomfortableness and we <laughs> talked about the DVD info, which is that uh, in 1999 and 2006 uh, are your sort of best MGM DVD options for this. It's currently not on Blu-ray, although uh, I was looking on Blu-ray.com and apparently there's a couple editions to be announced. So yeah. they're in the works. Well, once Anne Margaret retweets this, it's going to happen. I I, I, I I assume so. That's going to be the impetus for all this, right? It's our bullshit that we just. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, we need to fucking end this. So, uh, Kit Power, please pimp all of your shit. Pimp your podcast, pimp your music, pimp the things you've been writing lately. Oh, Christ. Okay. Um, so, if you want to find my writing, the easiest thing to do is to go to Amazon.com or co.uk, go to books, search for Kit Power. Uh, I've got an author page on Amazon. All of the stuff that I've got out is in there. Uh, recent releases, I've got a short story collection called A Warning About Your Future Enslavement that you will dismiss as a collection of short fiction and essays by Kit Power. That's available in paperback and ebook. And I'm in Visions from the Void, which is a collection of uh, 12 short stories inspired by abstract uh, black and white pop art. So I've got a story in that called The Prickles, which I'm very proud of. And it's, a, I mean, I've, I've been reading that through in my story aside. It's a really good collection. There's some really good up and coming writers in there, uh, really going for it. Uh, and New Fears 2, I've got a short story in that, and that's coming out later in the year. So look out for that. I think that's available pretty shortly from Titan Books. Yes, indeed. If you want to listen to me talk about the greatest movie ever made uh, with a different guest each month, including on separate occasions, the two uh, wonderful gentlemen whose dulcet tones you've been enjoying this evening, uh, head on over to Watching Robocop Kit Power. Uh, I'm on Libsyn. I'm on iTunes. Uh, there's, I think, 17 or 18 episodes up at this point. I watch the movie. I'm not kidding. Every month, different guest. Uh, and it's that's really good fun. I have great, you know, I've had a great range of guests on there and it's it's been really enjoyable. There's also a side project there called Kit and It, where I talk about Stephen King's It, the book, uh, the movie and the other movie. Um, so uh, that's just started up. There's only one episode of that at the moment, but there'll be more coming shortly. And I think that's it. Oh, no, nonfiction. If you want to read my nonfiction writing, go to gingernutsofhorror.com. I've got my own area called My Life in Horror, where every month I write about something that screwed me up as a kid. So go and check that out. Awesome. And uh, I would recommend all these things highly, by the way. And I'm not just saying that because Kit Power is my friend, but uh, he's generally a brilliant writer. So there you go. Oh, thank you. Uh, Daniel, where can people find you? I would agree that Kit Power is a, a brilliant person in general, except that he's my friend. And uh, I think that's a real blind spot in Kit's, uh, in Kit's <laughs> acumen. Um, other than that, uh, you can follow me at Daniel Lee Harper uh, on Twitter. Uh, I basically just follow Nazis and explain them at this point and occasionally <laughs> retweet something else. Um, I did have the members, uh, I, I did have a bit of a tweet swarm around me where the members of a uh, like pseudo neo-Nazi organization got really upset when I criticized one of their banners recently, which was a lot of fun because it's really nice to see like frat boy Nazis get critical of you talking about them, maybe spending too much time cutting, you know, putting glitter on a banner or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually admire them. I think that neo-Nazis should spend more time on arts and crafts. And uh, I was yeah. not being critical of them for that. I was being critical of them for being uh, overtly proud of that. Uh, as yeah. as like, yeah, that they think, they think, yeah, anyway, anyway um, it was a really I would say ideally if they spent, <laughs> ideally if they spent 100% of their time on art and crafts, that would be, I, that would I, be I think, I think neo-Nazis, I mean, you know, the obvious counterexample aside, I think that Nazis would would make a should spend more time with art supplies. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com, where you can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook links. Join our Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook. Best way to get in touch with us, find out what's coming up on the podcast. We're not exactly sure what we're doing next episode. It's going to be horror, and we're going to be deep sort of digging deep into horror. We're going to be doing it for maybe 
perhaps two months. We're going to be doing quite an extended series here, so should be a lot of fun. But until then, uh, thank you very much, Kit, for joining us again. It's been too long, and uh, we always enjoy you jumping on. Oh, yeah, no, man. Thanks for having me back. I pretty, thanks for letting me hijack and, and drop these two M. Margaret movies in at the, end of the, at the end of the run. I appreciate it. Oh, no, it was, it was our pleasure. And uh, Daniel, thank you for joining me again. Always. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. We'll be back when we're back for episode 125. So it should be something special, horror-wise. So uh, get ready, motherfuckers. And uh, as Elvis would say, thank you. Thank you very much. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I am just a devil with love to spare. So Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! How I wish that there were more than the 24 hours in the day. Even if there were 40 more, I wouldn't sleep a minute away. Oh, there's blackjack and poker and the roulette wheel. A fortune won and lost on every deal. All you need is strong heart and a new steel. Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas with your neon flashing and your one-armed bandits crashing all those hopes down the drain. Viva Las Vegas turning day into nighttime, turning night into daytime. If you see it once, you'll never be the same again. I'm gonna keep on the run, I'm gonna have me some fun. If it cost me my very last dime. If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time. I'm gonna give it everything I've got. Lady, look, please let the dice stay hot. Let me shoot a seven with every shot. Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Viva Las Vegas! Viva! pressing right here guys and um, i just want to say uh, keep on trucking be good to your woman or she'll leave you like priscilla left me don't ever sign up with someone named colonel tom parker anyone of colonel in their handle don't uh, do that because uh that'd be bad uh i learned the hard way brothers
Colonel Tom Parker took me for all my money and left me a drug-addled wreck. It's a good thing I turned my life around and faked my death, baby. Now the king is flying high. I just wish I could talk to my daughter. Tragedy is the story of Elvis Presley. But, you know, don't feel sorry for me, baby, because I know karate. And, I mean, if you, you come up with me some dour looks and you're feeling sorry for me, I'll use my stuff on you, baby. I'll totally do it. All right. You be good to one another, and uh, we'll see you again on TMB DOS. Great podcast. The only one Elvis listens to. Huh!